The World Cup on off the ball, covering the good, the bad, and well, the ugly of what's happening in Qatar. Neymar can push the ball between your legs because he just sees things. Subscribe to the OTB Football Podcast feed now. OTB AM with Gillette in association with Movember. Effortless shave, magnificent mo. Yeah, so it's been a headliner's dream so far as the uh, World Cup has kicked off. And maybe, maybe we have a winner so far. Rising stun. No? You know? No, no, you're not feeling the shame? I like it. It's not bad. Yeah. Not bad. I think it's like, this, this could be like in Headlines of the Year. Yeah, okay. The, uh, the Headlines of the Year were announced at the, um, at the National Newspaper Awards, whatever they're called. I can't remember the name of them. But uh, on this week, and there were, they were some pretty good ones. Like when you have to sift through... What is it at the end of Shawshank Redemption? Five miles of shit. <laughs> we we do come up with some good ones. Um, the the other headlines this morning are about uh, Avram Grant. Uh, sorry, the the Glazers, and um, that's the other famous famous Avram, of course. Yanks a billion is the uh, the other vaguely right. good. There was one other good one that I've now lost. You're not the judging panel, are you? I'm not. No. no. I mean, I don't know why. Yeah, you should be. I mean, I'm very well qualified for this. Uh, Japandemonium, the biggest World Cup shock since uh, Tuesday. Is um, you know, I like that one. Hats yeah. off to the Daily Mail. Yeah, credit, credit where credits due. I like Japan demonium. Uh, Japan proving that substitutes work. Made five subs in the second half yesterday. Two of them scored. I mean, strength and depth. You do think, you, said. You, you do kind of think that maybe um, it's a different game. It's, it's a bit like rugby. Five subs completely changes everything. Yeah, you can go out and run and run and run and run and run. And then we're going to replace you with an athlete who can run and run and run and run. And if there is any kind of organisation and talent and skill applied to that, then all of a sudden it's a different team you're playing. Yeah, hundred percent. You know, fresh legs. Uh, like if you're watching the first half, you're thinking Germany are going to win this game reasonably comfortably. Uh, chances galore hit the post. Um, Japan keeper had to make a number of unbelievable saves at times, and uh, and yet, like I was listening to Ilkay Gundogan coming out after the match, and he was saying, not everyone wanted the ball. Like, which is a very, very harsh thing to say. Oh, about I missed team. that. So he was fully. You see, he basically said players had shirt responsibility. Um, but to say that not everyone wanted the ball is uh, name names. Okay. Yeah, exactly. That's fairly direct. Um, so not a good thing to hear from from one of the German players if you're if you're in the German camp or a German is fan. Thomas Müller really still one of the best eleven footballers in in Germany. Like he's been around a very, 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 very long time. Mm. He has he has big games still for Bayern. Was there not like a little bit of one of those heritage tour elements to sticking him in the team at the start? No? Maybe, but like, isn't he one of those like World Cup big game players? Miroslav Klose type players where you're going to show up and score a few goals? Yeah. Maybe. Experience tells in a World Cup, you kind of need it. Although uh, Manuel Neuer yesterday parrying the ball out straight to his six-yard box for Japan to score wasn't exactly telling in terms of experience, but um, oh, that was a cracking game. Hansi Flick under pressure because if, if they lose to Spain and is it Sunday? And then I think, well, they're pretty much gone because Japan will beat Costa Rica. Was was Hansi Flick all that as uh, the Bayern manager? Uh, I mean, I suppose international f- management is different, isn't it? Like it's 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 less focused, less intense. But then when the World Cup comes around, it's different. He, he, like he wasn't the best Bayern manager that, that's been in the last decade. No, you know. Uh, I, I, it's still the same game. Yeah, like you still want to like have a good record. You still want to exhibit it kind of. Yeah, I can handle this because mm. it's not the same as like the. It's it's uh, it's as pressurized as the England job. Yeah, yeah, it's fair. Uh, but then like the the Spain job is a pressurized job, and Luis Enrique is. He was born to that, and like <laughs> has has 
some Madridistas and some Barcelona fans who still, I think, would uh, get behind him. Mm. He understands all of that. He's, he's a different character. And actually, you know, he managed Messi in a fight with him and won the league. Yeah. So I think... Um, He's likeable as well. Like he was very animated on the sideline for for much of the game yesterday, and then as soon as it went to maybe five or six, he like slowly took his seat and he was like, "Okay, my, my job is done here, and I don't want to rub it in to Costa Rica." Uh, what was the crack with Rudiger? So uh, Colin, our producer, was showing us the show me the video beforehand. This, essentially, the sixty fourth minute of the Germany Japan game, Rudiger does this exaggerated run with his knees high in the air towards the touchline to sh- shepherd the ball out of play and win himself a goal kick. Um, and, and and smiling afterwards, smirking afterwards. So, fairly cocky with 25 minutes plus uh, stoppage time to play. And we know in this World Cup, stoppage time is fairly significant. So, um, yeah, Rudiger got what was coming to him with uh, with Japan getting those two late goals. So, yeah, uh, cockiness doesn't go all the way. Like if you're gonna if you're gonna showboat and do that, maybe wait till at least 85 minutes when you're one nil up, not 65. So, a bad move by Antonio Rudiger. Big result for for Japan though. Um. Are any of these teams going to do anything for us? Like, do we want these results at this stage of the competition or does it actually ruin the quarterfinals? Well, like, you could, you can foresee, uh, I mean, like a 2002 job, South Korea and Turkey in a semi-final. Yeah, wasn't yeah. great, was it? That wasn't great. But I mean, yeah, you kind of want one of these teams to get to a final if they're going to do something. No, we don't. No? They'll just get hammered in the final. Do you think yeah, so? Yeah, they'll get hammered in the final by somebody who knows what they're doing. That's the problem. It's like, these shocks are great, in one off, but you need to you need to get rid of all the bad teams. Look, maybe that's what the whole point of the round of last sixteen is. Um, but well, I heard the Uruguay manager interestingly, and they're playing uh, this morning, isn't it, or today anyway against South Korea? And like he was basically saying before the World Cup, we are here to win the World Cup. Well, they, they've they've who else in that group? That uh, memory service Uruguay, group of death. South Korea, Portugal, Ghana. Yeah, that's a group of death. Yeah. Um, but if you're Uruguay and you look at the talent of players you have and the fact that you can score goals and you can defend like not much else you need for things to break your way to reach a semi-final and then you know all bets are off like really really kind of not amazing teams have won some World Cups recently yeah but that, that would be a surprise if Alexi Uruguay could do it I'd put that in a shock Germany grand Italy grand when they won the World Cup they weren't absolutely astonishingly amazing all-time great teams but mm. they won those World Cups by being hard to beat and scoring when they needed to. And look, we're we're signing. Everyone is signing the the, uh, the death warrant for Germany and, and Argentina already. But like Spain lost their opening game in 2010 and went on to win the tournament. It can be done. It's not ideal, but I mean, it, it can be the kick up the ass that that some teams need. Yeah, I, like uh, the collapse of Germany was um, maybe too precipitous, and the fact that both those teams were in front in those games, whereas actually. Uh, Switzerland beat Spain 1-0 I think it matters I think that like Spain mm. just didn't perform that opening game and they still had some of the best players in the world so uh, it's not quite the same The other thing that, that kind of point, uh, came to my attention yesterday obviously Canada you're, when Alfonso Davies is stepping up for that penalty you're thinking they've never scored a World Cup goal this is only their well it's their fourth game second World Cup but I mean you're thinking this, this is a historic moment Alfonso Davies about to score Canada's first ever goal take the lead in a huge game against Belgium the second ranked team in the world Oh, they shouldn't be the second ranked team in the world. <clears throat> and uh, yeah, he just looked really nervous. Same for Lewandowski, like for Poland against Mexico. Has never scored in a World Cup. Looked really nervous taking the penalty. I just feel like Lewandowski and Alfonso Davies lining up for those two penalties were quite aware of the, the weight of pressure in two different ways that were on their shoulders. So. Columns complained about the referee taking an age to let uh, Alfonso Davies take that penalty. Like, uh, not notwithstanding that, right? But also the number of chances that they created in that first half and... Uh, Thibaut Courtois putting in another incredible I am 
got to save my team tonight performance. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's good at football, Thibaut Courtois. I don't know if you knew that, Shane. As it turns out, first time a Belgian keeper saved a penalty in the World Cup since 66. Hot take. Yeah. Um, again, you know, everybody's complaining about how crap Belgium were, but like, let's add Lukaku back into the team, give De Bruyne a little bit of time to get some form and fitness. It looked like he wasn't quite fully no. fit. He got mad at the match, apparently, someone said. Which... I mean, so I presume, is it the Belgian COCOM given that? Essentially. Like, no, it's it's the press. It's, yeah, but like... The sponsor, yeah. Yeah, but who's picking it for the sponsor? Well, that's the question. Like, <laughs> some, someone has to... Someone has... Well, you know, when the... when the Whatever the... Is it Carlsberg player of the match on the RT football commentary gives it it's like someone picks it yeah. there isn't like a, a Carlsberg beer bottle going oh I like the cut of the right back's jib today it's the same there's not a Budweiser bottle there going I've had three yeah I'm gonna go well, is there, is I there recognise a, De Bruyne after that <laughs> that's not what happens is there unsponsored FIFA coverage no or uh, sorry unbiased FIFA coverage that's just generic and they have a commentator from a certain country I don't know um, but either way he didn't deserve well to be, there is there is the world feed that um, the host broadcaster who would be in would um, would be sorting out. Yeah, so maybe. maybe. But, but like the, whoever's the, on Cocom for that gets to pick it. But like again, that's like a. Uh, I mean, it was Courtois, right? Yeah, yeah. Oh, it had to be. Yeah, I mean, the amount of chances the Canada had, and Belgium looked so vulnerable to that pace and and attack and play the Canada had. And that that'd be a concern if you're if you're a Bel- if you're following oh, Belgium. Yeah. Now here's the thing, though. Like as Kev <coughs> Kev Cabana was on two days ago. If you missed it, he was on talking about the atta- attacking trio that Canada have and. He was like, they're really brilliant, fast, pacey, good control. Not everybody has those three qualities yeah. up front. So um, I hope Canada can bounce back and I hope that they can um, get a bit of joy in this competition because they deserve it. They played really well and yeah. you can see why they'd be heartbroken of that. And you could also see how that was their chance. They blow it. The aftermath of that is a, a massive letdown as well. So, uh, right, OTBAM brought to you live with Gillette in association with Movember. Effortless shave, magnificent mo. You can sign up or donate now at movember.com. Um, Flick did win a treble during the Covid year I know the German league is a given but Pep couldn't win the Champions League with them and uh, Bracken says I think you're selling Japan short here lads they have some quality players they do and they also had a manager as as Shane points out was willing to make the changes that they needed to do Um, I was just reading on uh, Twitter a a German football analyst who was very annoyed about Flick Um, Talking about some of the players who should have come on earlier. Gunnigan should have come off later. Uh, Musiala was playing really well. And um, a lot of people think it's unpredictable, but I've seen this particular game too many times. Many shots from the box, but there are too many bodies in there from Germany's type of possession. Without a box present to create a decent chance, it was apparent in the first half, so you need to change that. And that's why Germany didn't take advantage. Um, and, uh, yeah, not a big flick fan. Mm. Just uh, generally. So and it's uh, Jasmine Baba on Twitter. If you're Flick now trying to prepare the, this team for, for Spain, I mean, <clears throat> you're going to be watching the tape of last night and albeit it's Costa Rica, probably the worst team in the tournament. Um, but Spain just looked unbelievable. Gavi's volley was, was one of the goals of the tournament so far. Just so delicately taken. Um, and even Morata. Morata's a laughing stock uh, before the tournament he comes on and he does the business. Um, ah, they're just unbelievable. Like They'll be hard-stopped. And we kind of talked about them during the Euros two years ago as this young team, up and coming. They're still a very, very young team, but um, they have that little bit of, of hardened experience now, I guess. And well, as you say, under someone like Luis Enrique, I mean, 
I, you'd find it hard to see Germany getting anything off that Spain team on Sunday. And uh, if that's the case, then we're going to have a big early exit. Germany going out of the uh, group stages for the second World Cup in a row, which would be a disaster for them. So uh, that, that's that's probably the game of the weekend, I think, the way it's been uh, set up. Not England-America for you? Uh, I mean, before the tournament, I was actually looking at this as, as a potential banana skin for England. But the way they played in the opening game, and again, opposition notwithstanding in Iran but England are just good they're very good um, saw a photo yesterday of young Jude Bellingham wearing a, a Republic of Ireland jersey as a kid he's wearing the full kit so um, yeah. you think one that could have got it oh. one that got away well I know Roy Keane that was having a bit of back and forth with Ian Wright was it yesterday on this Grealish and Rice and a little bit of slagging about the English stealing our players but best of luck to them I hope they do well Grealish and, and Rice yeah, the whole country is behind them. Uh, if you want to get in touch, 0879-180-180 is the WhatsApp number, or you can leave a comment on the YouTube stream. Here's what's coming up between now and 10am. Dave McIntyre is going to join us for his uh, World Cup thoughts so far. Andy Mitten is going to update us on what the general vibe is amongst the Manchester United fans with the increasing likelihood that uh, the club will be sold. Uh, we're bringing some sports news and a round of everything else going on at... 8.35, Matt Williams is going to join us at 8.50, Noel McGrath 9.15, new Tipperary captain, uh, officially anointed, and Packy Bonner, you've been talking to Packy. Interesting stuff about uh, Cueven Keller, he's fairly certain that he knows what he thinks is the right thing to yeah. happen. Yeah, Packy, like I was kind of putting to him that, you know, we're, we're blessed to have Bazunu and Kelleher playing the football that they're playing, and even Mark Travers playing really well this season as well, um, and he's almost forgotten about in the in the discussion, but yeah, Packy very much of the opinion that Cueven Kelleher needs a Needs a loan move away at this stage. He's got that experience with Allison and the, and the experience of playing and training with Liverpool over the years and getting the little bit of game time here and there in the cups. But yeah, at this stage, I think he needs to have a, he needs to have a loan move away. Packy was the same. Very interesting. Packy talking about uh, Italian ninety as well and Daniel Timofte, who he met up with, I think thereafter a few years later for some sort of uh, media discussion. And um, he said Timofte normally went straight down the middle with his penalties. And uh, that day was told the Packy Bonner was slow down to his right hand side, and that's uh, of course why he went to Packy's right and and our left, and um, the rest is history, as Packy said himself. You know, sliding doors moment. Um, maybe if Tim Offday hadn't listened and gone down the middle, it could have gone differently. But that's the way it panned out. So uh, he also kind of backed the, the, these calls for. I know John Aldridge was saying it on our roadshow recently, but. A statue for, for Jack Charlton somewhere, potentially the, at the Viva Stadium, along with you know other rugby recognition maybe as well. So that'll be something that'll be nice to see. And Packy very much uh, backing up those calls. Yeah, yeah. I mean, or you could put it. It is. I think there is a Jack Charlton statue besides. I want to say the River of Mayo in Ballina. Is there rings a is that the Moy? Am I right? Is it the Moy in Ballina? Geography. Has Does anybody know? Is I I for there's something in my head about that, mm. or maybe it's just a, a plaque or something. Uh, Jack did love going fishing in Mayo, and I'm fairly sure that rings a bell. There's something there, uh, but about Cueven Keller, go out and loan. Yeah, I mean, uh, uh, no ifs ands or buts. He was fairly definitive about it. Yeah, well, as soon as I asked him, he said, "I knew you were going to ask me this." And uh, yeah, I think at this stage, it is a loan move. If that's what he needs. Um, like, he, he, there's only so much. Benefits you can get from, as he pointed out, from from being at Liverpool constantly and not getting game time and and being the the number two to Allison. Uh, so he definitely very much was of the opinion that he needs to go out now and play, and that that's a fact. Like even uh, you look at strikers like Evan Ferguson, even like there's talk of him now going out on loan in 
in January from Brighton. That would be great for him. And there's so many clubs after him. Loads of clubs would be looking for Weaving Gallagher services. Like the experience he's he's gotten cups for Liverpool and yeah, what he's a penalty if, expert too. What if um, what if like his level is to be a backup at one of the best clubs and that's fine. Like what you know because obviously he can do that for the next twenty years and be a reliable number two, never putting the number one under any specific threat, and you have a great career. But what if you go and have a low move and it backfires? But you'd imagine someone of Quiven Kelleher's talent and it's not going to backfire. Look at Bazunu at Southampton. It's like it, it, Keller's it, at his level. It's in the range of outcomes, though. Like, yeah, potentially. But I mean, you don't want to die not knowing, <laughs> you know, or retire not knowing in years to come. You know, Jesus, if I just gone out on loan instead of spending those three or four years uh, making millions. Two. Well, making millions, of course. But I mean, I want to play football, doesn't he? Well, a job's a job. Yeah, but uh, look, uh, he's not going to get international options and time on the pitch if he's not playing regular football that's what on, on, on the balance of probabilities he has to go and, and if it doesn't really work out Liverpool are still going to bring him back and then he can sit on the bench perhaps and um, be happy with his lot and they'll be like look we let you go And uh, but then I suppose if he does go and it's, it's a great year what does he do then? Then he has to move Yeah then he's a Premier League starting goalkeeper isn't he? Well, like uh, If Pizzuno is then Cuevin Kelleher is and maybe we have green tinted glasses over here. But well, Pizzuno so. is clearly better than Kelleher at the moment. Yeah. So I, I wouldn't say if Pizzuno is Kelleher is at all. Because he's playing regular football. But he's clearly better. Like, he's got, he's got a better range of skills. He's, like, more commanding. He's, he's, he's ahead of him. I don't. Like. That's, the, that's more the, of an argument for him to go out on loan. Well, sure. But I don't think we're. Get, like, Cuevin Kelleher could well be uh, one of the top 30 goalkeepers in. English football, which would make him like top of the championship goalkeeper, which is an amazing career, yeah. right? There's only one of these jobs, really, starting jobs, as we know, in the Premier League for 20 goalkeepers. Um, Bazunu may well be in the top 10. Like, we don't know yet. We'll have to wait and see exactly what his ceiling is. But, um, yeah, I just, I don't think it's a slam dunk that everything goes in a straight line. And you have to look at, like, the rest of the players who come through at around the same time when Kenny took over. Andrew Omobamadeli, Adam Ida, the injury profile of those players in particular has been really devastating to, to the, the, the pace at which we thought their career was going to develop. We thought they'd both be playing Premier League football week in and week out by now. And they definitely have the talent for it, but they've just have been let down. So, like, it's not a straight line, go out and loan, everything's going to be great. You're going to find a, a manager who uh, plays the type of football that you want to or suits you. You know, make two mistakes early on in the championship for managers under pressure, you're out of there. And he, he has no loyalty to you. He sends you back and it's like tail between your legs. Troy Parrott is a great example of this where this is his third long move, am I right? Mm, like he, the first one, complete disaster. The second one, slightly better. This one, taking its time to get to a level where it's, um, it's starting to work and then starts to work and the hamstring comes off the bone and he's out for a significant period of time. So I don't know. I just like I, I can see why if you're in Queen Keller's camp, you're saying there's no rush here. Mm. You need to get to a point of absolute, like high-performing excellence in every aspect of your life, and then when you're confident enough that you're going to be able to walk into a dressing room and go, "I'm from Liverpool. I like I was on the bench in the Champions League final, and I've won cups, and I deserve to be here, and I'm going to be a leader in the dressing room, and I'm going to really." benefit from this experience I'm getting that from Keller already those vibes like as opposed to you know 18 months ago 2 years ago I think he's, he's improving that in his confidence even the way he um, conducts himself in interviews the advantage Keller has in terms of a loan move Jerry I would say is, is that he would have options it's not like he's going to have one offer or two offers 
like coming in, he will have a multitude of offers because he's so good and he's got the experience of Liverpool. So he can sit down, analyse the clubs that have come in for him, see who's in charge there, see what their system is like um, and, and how happy he would be in terms of um, quality of life moving to that place. And uh, at least he has the option. So I think he, he has that benefit of being able to choose because he'll have so many people in for him that he can kind of pick and choose managers that he wants to play under as well. So That's a fair point. It's an uh, advantage. That is a fair point. So, uh, Packy thinks he should go and get a, a gig uh, playing full-time first-team football um, on loan. And look, maybe Liverpool have decided, yeah, they can get 10, 15 million for a goalkeeper who's played a full season at the top of the championship. Mm. And it's time for them to cash in and use that money to... I mean, that's kind of been their, their model for a long time. So, uh, right, there is a statue, there was a statue of Jack Charlton at the old Cork airport. Gonna have to explain to me, there are two airports in Cork? <laughs> yeah? Yeah? Wasn't aware of that, but obviously Colm, Cork man is... He's saying the one in 2011. Like, oh, that one, the, the 2011 one. Was that a new one in 2011? A new terminal built, so it's the same airport, a new terminal in there. Right. It's next to it in the same premises, but is it, is it called the new Cork Airport? Is that like, okay. Of course it is. <laughs> Should be the Jack Charlton Airport. Come on. Let's name an airport after him. It's been too long. It'd be Knock, though, wouldn't it? It would be Knock, yeah. Is Knock not named after the priest who invented it? I think it is. Let's switch that out to Jack. Why not? I mean, come on. Yeah, it's about time. Might as well. Uh, we do want to talk about this now because we're going to talk about it again with Andy Mitten a little bit later on. Sky News doorstep the Manchester United co-owner Avram Glazer not Avram Grant, that's a different fella. Avram Glazer, near his home in West Palm Beach in Florida. You can see the house in the background if you're watching this, by the way. It looks, the security of, it kind of looks like, it's just, uh, you know, unsurprisingly nice gaff. Anyway, watch. It's now the right time to sell Manchester United. Hi, well, as we announced yesterday, the board went through a process and it's decided it's going to look at different strategic alternatives and that's what we're doing. So United fans say that you should have sold the club years ago. Well, once again, we've gone through a process. We're going to look at all different all strategic alternatives, and we'll see where that leads us. So I appreciate you talking to me tonight, and I'm going to wish everyone a happy Thanksgiving. Christian, Cristiano Ronaldo says that you don't care about the club, and thousands of United fans agree with him. Why, why should they be wrong? Well, I'll tell you about Cristiano Ronaldo. He's a great Manchester United player. I appreciate everything he's done for the club, and I wish him the best luck in the future. Thanks very much. Why did he have to leave the club? Why did he have to leave the club? Well, he had to leave the club because he told the manager he didn't respect him. <laughs> no, that one's like... Um, it's, sorry, it wasn't his gaff. Uh, it, it looked like his gaff when I was watching on Twitter at 6 o'clock this morning. But it's actually um, at the restaurant. Yeah, it looks... A nice snazzy restaurant, too, I'd imagine. Um, so, De- deer in headlights, he looked like there. I think he comes across like well, I mean, I've got I've got one line to say and I'm going to keep saying it and I'm not going to give you anything. He looked a bit surprised to see the reporter there, which is probably true. Yeah, um, yeah it's uh, look, <laughs> it's a bit of a strange one for Avram uh, Glazer because like he's been involved in. I think he, he took over a, an oil natural gas company from from his father in two thousand or nineteen ninety mid nineties. This is a company that was founded by George Bush Senior. He's got, he's an experienced man. He knows what the crack is, uh, and he's obviously the forefront of this. Um, the Glazer brothers, um, with the other two as well. So, I mean, like it's funny because they love him in Tampa Bay. <laughs> well, I, like here's the thing, right? Manchester United fans say you should have sold the club years ago. Well, they'll be happy now, right? Yeah, we're we're making them happy. We're giving them what they want. Seventeen years they've had, 
and they've done nothing but saddle them with 500 million quid debts and yeah, but the debt a, hasn't, the debt a stadium has, falling apart and I, like every debt I think there's I still think there's fundamental misunderstanding of how this debt works they've serviced the debt they've made a load of money they've revolutionised the commercial aspect of the business <clears throat> yes they've taken money out of the club because that's what business people do they invest to make money and like but do you should you as a very extreme inordinately rich human being take uh, and pay dividends to yourself yes, and your family that's when, how business works when the when the club is in debt and struggling but on sure, the that's the, the club stadium's falling apart and you're paying yourself dividends annually well yeah because that's how the business works and and uh, the the debt like the debt exists but it was being serviced so it doesn't really matter like the the debt has been a red herring for the Man United fans as like some weird way for them to escape the fact that the football was so crap and all those football people they believed in Jose Mourinho uh, Luis van Gaal David Moyes, Alex Ferguson made it work. Alex Ferguson was there and won championships yeah. with the Glazers. So somebody could have won championships with the Glazers. And he won them before the Glazers too. But, but sorry, so the Glazers had no impact on Alex Ferguson's ability to win championships. Uh, look, uh, so therefore it's not the Glazers. I think, it's, I think the, it's the other mismanagement of the club. If David Gill had stayed, I think they would have been very successful. Oh yeah, like he, he even was with the man. Glazers. Yeah. So it's not the Glazers. It's actually not the Glazers or the debt that's the issue. It's the chronic mismanagement of, of the investment. Now, they didn't give they, the, the money kept coming in. They might have had a firmer hand on the teller. They could have been more. They could have been more Roman Abramovich and interfering and sacking the manager every every six months. Well, they maybe that would have been the thing. They haven't invested in the stadium or the or the facilities or the infrastructure. Like and, and I don't know how much impact or input they have in terms of transfers and, and pushing you know like Ronaldo was signed at a time for the second time when publicity around the Glazers uh, was, was at a, a low a load of Man United fans were like how could this possibly be a bad thing it's got one of the world's best strikers coming in to, to mentor Mason Greenwood and all the rest of those young strikers it's going to be massively beneficial for them isn't it that was, that was the narrative that we got fed by all the Man United fans not at, well, yeah, most of them. And uh, were you not happy when Ronaldo signed? Well, I think I think most United fans were happy that he didn't sign for Man City, which was the well, threat. So, so, so now, but, in but, retrospect, wouldn't you actually love to be gone and wreaked havoc for Pep's Man City? I don't know how interested Pep was. I don't know what that. What he might have wreaked havoc in another in another way. He might have been brilliant. He wouldn't. He wouldn't. Really, with that team around him, he wouldn't. Getting but handed okay. goals on a plate. Okay, grand, maybe. But the point is that the Glazers are easy for everybody to blame. But there are other things that are, are have been chronically wrong. The character of so many of those individuals who they signed, the character of so many of those players who just allowed the mediocrity to continue. Like United became a club that started signing strikers with a profile of Alexis Sanchez, Edinson Cavani, Odion Agallo. Was Alexis Sanchez not the Falcao. best player in the Premier League when he signed for them? I, but was the, he not? The profile was just not. The pro, I don't think he I, I, like he wasn't a Robin van Persie signing. Do you know? Um, it was very similar to Robin van Persie signing, like the top scorer at Arsenal for the last couple of seasons. Attitude problems, though. Like, and, like I don't know. I'm not blaming the Glazers for that for buying players like that. But I mean, are you not though? Are gla- you not giving the, everybody else involved in the club a free pass for what the Glazers did? Fine, okay. You can you can say that saddling the club with debt is is a bad mechanism, but like, uh, it, it's also a mechanism that's used all over the world for loads of different ways to finance the purchase of things. And the business made money and was run relatively well from a business perspective. We've got to move on. Got to move on. We'll come back to this. Yeah. Dave McIntyre is with us. Dave, good morning to you. Morning, lads. How are you? What do you think of the, the Glazers selling the club? <laughs> well, I'm, first, I'm not 100% sure they are going to be selling the club. I think you know, a lot of Manchester United fans have jumped the gun a little bit. They're, 
they're planning obviously on changing the way they're looking at things and whether that involves selling off a portion of the club then the portion of the percentage of the club they own or whether they're going to sell it hook line and sinker i don't know but i do know that with the debt that's involved and the valuation that they're likely to pull on the club it's going to be very difficult to find a buyer with person with uh, with pockets deep enough to actually come up with the goods because as we've seen in the recent past Given the valuation, I think the market cap is about 2.75 billion at the moment. Yeah. The talk is the Glazers are going to look for something closer to four. So who's going to be able to finance that? Is it going to be another state? Is it going to be uh, a one individual that can afford that? I think that's going to be really difficult. It's It'll be something similar to Cristiano Ronaldo scraping around in the dirt looking for a Champions League club to take him during the summer. The shortlist I would have thought potentially will be very short. It's, it is pretty short. However, there's loads of um, uh, consortiums always trying to buy American football clubs, and you can imagine now an American football club is a license to print money in a way that uh, Premier League teams aren't the same guarantee because you, you're not guaranteed Champions League football every year. But Man United are guaranteed Europa League football. And anyway, let's move on because the World Cup is on, and we've seen two of the greatest shocks that we're ever going to see. So, what, what have been your standout highlights so far? For me, and nobody saw this coming, that Saudi Arabia would be the feel-good story of this World Cup. But <laughs> look, here we are. Um, the second half of that game against Argentina was spellbinding. It really was. Not just the manner in which they came back from behind to, to go in front, but the way they defended in the last 25 minutes was... If you were a Saudi Arabia supporter, if you're a, an out-and-out defender watching from home, if you can recall those back-to-the-wall performances like um, Ireland produced at Giant Stadium, for example, against Roberto Baggio and his pals in 1994, that's the sort of performance that their defence in particular turned into in the last 25 minutes. The amount of blocks, tackles, guys covering 60 metres to, to harry somebody into a mistake. Um, I can't recall a World Cup match where the crowd were as loud as the Saudi Arabia fans. Every block and tackle was just greeted like they'd stuck one into the top corner. It, I was in, absolutely enraptured by that last 25 minutes. It was it, it just incredible to watch. So for me to take a small portion of what we've seen in the last week, that last 20, 25 minutes for me was the highlight so far. Uh, are you concerned that that's the end of Leo Messi in Argentina? Do you think they can come back from this? Well, look, people keep pointing towards Spain in 2010 as an example of a side that lost their opening game, went on to win it. I think the talk around this Argentina team was greatly overhyped coming in. They seem to be wearing their long unbeaten stretch like a badge of honour, despite the fact that they barely played any European teams. And outside of Brazil and Uruguay, there are very few sides of any real strength in the South American qualifying system. They did win the Copa America, I grant you that. That was a huge moment for Leo Messi and the overall picture of his career. But I look at their starting eleven, and I don't see an awful lot that can hurt the opposition outside of Lautaro Martinez if he's given the right sort of ball. The rest of the players are not elite top-level European players playing at the top European clubs for whom there are a number of other clubs chasing every transfer window. Leo Messi, a lot of made of his form at PSG this season, where he doesn't have to do an awful lot apart from wait for the ball. He can drop a bit deeper if he wants. But he was smothered by Saudi Arabia. And in the last 25 minutes, you would barely know that the so-called greatest player of his generation was on the field. And this is against potentially the weakest team in the group outside of Costa Rica. So they still have to play in one other really tough game. 
And I would fear for them now. I, I don't see them getting out of this group. I don't see them winning the two matches that they'll probably need to do to get out of the group. They created very few chances in the second half. First half, yeah, a couple of marginal offsides away from the game being put to bed. Would have been a very different story then, I grant you that. And they probably could have gone on to win by five or six. But the dent that their confidence would have taken here, I wouldn't, wouldn't surprise me now if they actually failed to win the two games, maybe get one win and limp out. As we saw Gabriel Batistuta's side limp out in the 1990s, it, it could be a similar story to that. It would be a rather ignominious end to Leo Messi's World Cup journey in, in what is his fifth World Cup. But he's in his mid-30s now and he's not able to affect games the way he used to. He's not able to take a game and carried on his own shoulders like he used to because he's just not the force he once was. Well, isn't the whole point that like you don't get to write your exit uh, of glorious triumph at the World Cup? Like Very, very few sports people ever get to do that. And for Messi, it was probably four years ago when he still was something close to his absolute peak, when he could put the team on his shoulders when he needed to. And they ran into the buzzsaw of killing Mbappe. And that's the passing of the torch that we saw at that stage. And Mbappe is still the best player in the world. Yeah, I agree completely that four years, maybe eight years ago was... was but even then, Jared, do you recall a World Cup that was dominated by Leo Messi where... Like we, we keep comparing everything to Maradona in 1986, a guy that just took the tournament on his own and showed everybody why he was the best player in the world. Now, the rest of that Argentina side in Mexico was probably a little underrated because they were so dominated by one of the greatest players we've ever seen. But if you go through that Argentina team, it was littered with really brilliant footballers. And I'm just not sure that Messi has had that around and when other teams have managed to stifle him a little. And that's very much to the fore with this Argentina team. You're looking at Angel Di Maria in his mid-30s. He had an appalling game the other day. And he was, wasn't was taken off at halftime, which he should have been. His end product was virtually nil, given this is a player who's had more assists than any other for PSG in their club's history. He was an absolutely phenomenal crosser of the ball and created so many opportunities for his teammates over such a long period of time. But you saw that he is half the player he used to be. And if Di Maria is in that Argentina team as a starter, trying to feed an attacker in Leo Messi that's also in his mid-30s, I think that tells you a lot about the lack of depth that they have in, in their numbers. And it's one of the reasons why when Scaloni was looking behind him at his bench, there was very little, if anything, that he felt he could call upon. How, how much, uh, Dave, can you read into the big teams winning their first game handily? Like Jerry mentioned, uh, France, of course, Australia weren't exactly the, the dominant opposition that maybe they're, they're going to face uh, the remainder of the tournament. Same for England against Iran and similar for, for Spain last night against Costa Rica. Like, Can you read into any of those results and performances and maybe say one of them stands out above the rest? Well, I think England scoring as many goals as they did is going to relieve an awful lot of the pressure on them and it just gets them off to the best possible start. Gareth Southgate was able to make changes and get as many minutes as into, into as, as many players as he could. So like 16 guys felt they were part of the World Cup already and the, the fact that Harry Kane didn't score and they still managed to score six and in saying that Harry Kane was able to contribute to as many of the goals as he did, I think that'll be huge for them. But a lot of it is down to the start that you get in the first half. And this is where Argentina are the exception to the rule because they got the start that they were looking for. They got the penalty, which was dubious, and they found themselves one up and dominating the game, which is exactly where Scaloni would have wanted them to be at that particular moment in that match. They didn't kick on. Whereas England got their goal and kicked on. We saw France overcoming that early uh, deficit against Australia and kicking on and getting the goals that saw the game put to bed before the opposition could really start generating some belief that they were in this and there was something in the game for them. And it's why I look at the game like 
from Saudi Arabia's point of view, is the longer they were in that game, suddenly they believed in what they could achieve. Japan, it was the exact same situation, found themselves behind, but they were in it long enough for them to continue to believe that there was something in it for them. And I, the, the key theme for me this week, outside of France demolishing Australia, has been a very obvious narrowing of the gap between the continents, between Africa and Asia in particular, and Europe, because... I think we saw the kernels of that in Russia in 2018, but we didn't get the shocks over a 90-minute spell that we've got this time around. There are so many players playing for countries like Senegal, Morocco, Japan that are playing in the top leagues in Europe week in, week out. They're playing in the Champions League. They're playing in the Europa League. And that is a higher level than the World Cup. Let's face it. There are very few teams in the World Cup with seven or eight world-class individuals where you can pick out a number of clubs in the Champions League that you could argue do have seven or eight world-class individuals in them. And these players, when they get together in camp for three or four weeks and they manage to put together a game plan, they don't fear what in the past they might have been coming up against in the World Cup. And it's why... The teams like Argentina, like Brazil potentially today, like Germany as we saw, like Belgium last night, who are absolutely blessed to get out of that game with a one-goal win. They're coming up against sides when they take to the field against them, 100% believe that they're able to get something out of the game. And when you couple that with the fact that the top sides have had a week to prepare, unlike other World Cups where they go into, say, Russia or in 2014 in Brazil, they've had three or four weeks in a camp together to rest their limbs, to get themselves into what the game plan is going to be. The manager can implement the tactics. These top managers for the top European countries haven't had that time. So you add that into the mix, and I think we're seeing a trend that's going to continue into the next 10 or 15 years, that the so-called lesser continents, so-called countries from those continents are getting stronger and stronger because they're all playing in Europe. They're all playing in the Europa League and Champions League. And the two huge shocks that we saw this week, I think are going to be repeated over the next decade. And, and over the next week or so? I really hope so, because when you've no skin in the game, as we don't, obviously, with the Republic of Ireland not being involved, you sit down to watch a World Cup game for exactly what we saw this week. And I was gripped yesterday watching the second half of the Japan-Germany game. And the uh, this sense of freedom that you, the Japanese played with in that second half. And those two second halves, I've already referenced the highlight being the second half of the Saudi game. They're the most enjoyable portions of the tournament for me so far. So I really hope you're, that you're right. And we see another two or three of these. And I think we will because... If anything, what the Japanese and the Saudi Arabian players have achieved is the opportunity to embolden the other teams. And if, uh, you sat down, you watched the way that Canada started that game. I was going to say, yeah, Canada. Yeah. Very few of those players would be, you, you, fans in this part of the world would be familiar with them, apart from some of the European-based players, you know, the exceptions being Junior Hoylett and Alfonso Davis and those guys. But there was five or six of that starting eleven that a lot of people would not have heard of before. And yet they ran the legs off an ageing Belgian side. Would they have settled for maybe trying to keep things a little more compact, keep things tight for the first 20 minutes if Saudi Arabia and Japan, Japan hadn't achieved what they had in the previous two days. Maybe that was always going to be their belief, but perhaps not. Perhaps they see what's going on in the group stage, the dynamic that's already at play in Qatar, and they're starting to think, well, if they can do it, why can't we? Look at this Belgian defence. You've got for Tonga and Toby Alderweireld in their mid-30s. 
There's, and Witzel protecting them in his mid-30s. There's no reason why our youth and exuberance can't really take it to them. And they sh- if they had a decent striker, they would have been three or four nil up by the time the Belgians scored. Yeah, or they've come up against the goalkeeper who is going to end up being an Oliver Kahn-style, one of the most important figures in the competition all the way through. And, and this Belgian team might not play to the level that we think they're capable of, but might not lose the game because they've got the best goalkeeper in the world. I'm not debating with that the Thibaut Courtois is either the best or one of the best goalkeepers in the world right now. But honestly, Jerry, you would have saved that penalty last night. <laughs> some of the other ones, some of the chances. I don't know. I, I do think part of it is like, shit, this is Courtois, you know? Yeah, an awful lot of it is that he's just an absolutely monstrous looking individual. And if you are taking a penalty against him, probably in your mind, it's like a, a golfer who's really struggling with his putting. The hole just looks incredibly small. Well, that goal must look very small when Thibaut Courtois is dancing around his goal line. But there was one save in the second half, a header heading for the top corner that he just made look so routine. And mm. He's an absolutely fabulous goalkeeper, yes. But the vast majority of the saves he made last night, you would absolutely expect him to All make. Right. You're not happy. I think he's going to he's going to concede a few goals in this tournament against a team that are more clinical and have more talent up front than the Canadians. I'm trying to find the. Uh, I'm just looking at the fixtures for today, Dave. I'm trying to find the next shock. Like a lot of people are sleeping on. Like I know Brazil are the tournament favourites, and probably rightly so. But like, are people sleeping on on the, on the Serbian team? Like we know Serbia very well from the from the Nations League group, and look, they beat Portugal, and they're impressive. Lavic and, and Mitrovic, they, they they can score goals. They're strong, good defensively as well. Like, I don't know. Like, is there a potential shock on the cards in this Brazil game later on? Opening game, anything could happen. Uh, there absolutely is a potential for a shot, but let's be honest, it's Serbia beating Brazil later today doesn't compare remotely yeah, of course. victories for Saudi Arabia and for Japan. This is a Serbian team that were absolutely brilliant in qualifying, topped their group, put Portugal into second place, had one of the best strikers in the world over the last 12-month spell in the team who was scoring so freely both in the championship now in the Premier League and at international level the big issue is is Mitrovic fully fit he didn't play in Fulham's last two Premier League games and they are an entirely different side if he is not in the team now he's going to start today but whether he is as sharp as he has been over the last 12 months if he is he's the sort of striker that needs three or four chances and he'll take at least two of those. That's the level of efficiency that he has in front of goal at the moment. And I completely expect Serbia to create opportunities today, given that it is the first game. Now, it is a very good Brazilian team. They have a really solid defence. They've got Casemiro in front of them and they've got a wealth of talent both on the field and on the bench. If They do need, do need to change things up, which is in stark contrast to Argentina when they did need to change it. They just did not have the options. I think Brazil do have the options. I'm hoping this is going to be the game of the tournament in terms of two relatively uh, good sides scoring goals against each other like something like a 2-2 draw but if you're looking for the next great shock Serbia win today will not go down mm. in the annals of history as a great shock there probably isn't one there today I mean if Ghana beating Portugal wouldn't be a massive shock either we probably do have to go towards tomorrow game tomorrow's games and maybe looking at something like Ecuador beating the Netherlands for, for the next really intriguing one. But it won't happen today. But that's not to say that today, in terms of the overall quality, may not be the best day that we've had so mm. far. We um, we obviously were reading lots into the Ronaldo body language and his arrival. And then they obviously have explained what happened. And I'm, I'm taking their their explanation at face value. Shane is a conspiracy well, I accept, theorist. I accept it now. I accept it. Yeah, brutal. Uh, however, I'm, I'm absolutely overreacting to Casemiro's challenge on Richarlison in training that went a bit viral. I, I mean, I, I have once before seen 
somebody in a training session absolutely annihilate somebody and it was Carlos Puyol and Patrick Clivert uh, at a Barcelona training session one time we interviewed Clivert afterwards it, sounded, it smelled a little bit like he'd been on the booze the night before and, and Puyol was letting them know it's unacceptable I just thought Richarlison it just doesn't look to me like he's one of those characters who you really want to live with week in week out for four weeks <laughs> I think he might be a bit annoying and I don't know that's the only thing that like we never understand the the, the tectonic plates of um, how well a team actually blends together you'd have to say Brazil are absolute mad favourites to win this France might give them a go but their central midfield pairing doesn't look like it's going to be um, as strong as it needs to be and maybe not their um, uh, fullback situation either so uh, I'm, I'm just hoping that if Brazil aren't going to win it, it's because they um, fall into a configuration of Neymar and Charlatan's making. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, look, we, we, we've seen so little of Brazil up against European teams for so long now. So I think there we just have to hold fire on, on all of these teams until we see them play. At least from a European point of view, we've seen the Nations League, we've seen the European Championships just 18 months ago. We've got a far greater sample size than we have with them. It's a Brazil team that couldn't get past Argentina uh, last year at the Copa America final. So, yes, they dominated qualifying. On paper, huge amount of great names. But Brazilian squads have gone to World Cups in the past with, on paper, an absolutely amazing, glittering squad of stars. And they have fallen flat on their face. So that could happen again this time around. I, I think today will probably end in a draw. Both of these teams will get out of their group and it's just a question of then whether they can just click into gear and start playing to the potential that they undoubtedly have. But I'm, I haven't got an awful lot to say in Brazil as yet outside of their potential until we can really get a, a better look at them today. All right, go and have a look at the Casemiro challenge. I think uh, that's a shut up. I thought it was. I thought it was a well-timed, well, cheeky it, little challenge. Bit, bit heavy, bit heavy for training. <laughs> if he, if he like, caught him, that's like... Casemiro is the kind of guy that, that treats every training session as he would a match. I'd yeah. say he's a very similar kind, kind of guy to a Roy Keane in that regard. And let's face it, if you were to put in a bone-crunching tackle on any member of that squad and get any more relish out of it, who else would it be only than Richarlison? Yeah. All right. 15 minutes past eight, Dave, this morning. Thanks so many for joining us. Cheers. Thanks, lads. Right. FIFA and football fans, watch out for this. Virgin Media is hosting a game for Ireland, which will see Irish football legends David Myler and Stephanie Roach take on Ireland's top esports football players and Team Wild athletes at five o'clock on Tuesday, the 29th of November. So that's next Tuesday. The game will be live streamed on Twitch and it'll take place in Cork City FC's Turner's Cross Stadium, all powered by Virgin Media Broadband, 99.9% broadband reliability. After this short break, Andy Mitten live on the line. OTB AM. Right, Andy Mitten is with us. Andy, good morning to you. How are you? Good morning. All good, thanks. We've uh, we spent a long time parsing the body language uh, between the former Manchester United colleagues uh, arriving at Portugal training. I'm, I'm going to ask you a similar question about Casemiro. From what you know, is Casemiro, does he like the old heavy challenges in training? Or should I be reading into the fact that he nearly um, chopped Richarlison in two? Uh, Casemiro trains as he plays. He did that at Madrid. Carlo Ancelotti loved him for doing that. Manchester United in their pomp uh, trained as they played. He came in this season and he flies into challenges. And uh, I don't think a lot of people have got a, a problem with that. All right, so it's a sign uh, of respect in, for Richarlison as opposed to... Uh... Maybe. In his defence, if you look at his disciplinary record, it, it's incredible given the number of games he's played and the position that he plays, he's had very, very few um, bookings and red cards. I don't even know if he had a red card in Spain in all that time that he played there. I don't think he had a single red card. 
Um, before we get into Manchester United stuff, obviously, uh, we have a, a, the record youngest ever scorer for Spain in a World Cup, just behind Pele now, uh, after the seven, uh, seven goals they scored last night. Um, it's very early to be this good. That's the one kind of caveat. Uh, but are people getting carried away with the brilliance of the Spanish, very young Spanish team? Given the opponents, um, Spain were, were always going to be strong, strong favourites. But Spain were strong favourites in the Euros and had a really stuttering start in the first couple of matches. So they, they've had a fantastic start. Five of that starting eleven were Barcelona players, the youngsters you mentioned, Gabi, the youngest, uh, Pedri. We knew a bit more about Pedri because he broke through a year before. They're good mates, but they're completely different players and people. So if you want to ask me about reckless madheads, ask me about Gavi rather than Casimiro because he's a hot-headed young bull and very talented. The way he took that goal yesterday um, was so impressive for someone of his age. Uh, I'm a big fan of uh, Pedri, the way he sees spaces, the way he exploits space. Uh, poor Costa Rica. Within three minutes of watching that game last night, I just thought Pedri is just going to destroy you here. And that's what he did. To be considered world-class as a teenager, it's, it's incredible really, isn't it? And they're not playing in a vintage Barcelona team either. So they've got very good players around them, but this isn't the Barca of a decade ago under Guardiola. It's still a team coming together. Uh, I really, really like Luis Enrique. I liked him a lot as a player, a lot as a manager, a lot as a person. I've been fortunate enough to interview him face-to-face. He does very few interviews. I sat in a bar with him for 90 minutes, one of the best interviews I've ever had. Got a lot of admiration for him. When he finished playing football, he took off by himself. He went to Glasgow. He went to Liverpool. He watched the Derby games. He stood on the cop. He just um, bought a scarf, not Liverpool one, I hope. And... Um, and just travel around the world. He's his own free spirit, but he's a very, very good manager. There's an excellent team spirit in the in the, the Spain squad, and I think they would be among the favourites. There's probably four or five teams who could could win the, win the World Cup, and Spain would be one of them. That's the best part about this, isn't it? That like uh, you, you look at the Spain team and you can pick holes in the age profile of some of their defenders or in the youthfulness that they're just a little bit inexperienced. But actually, blend it together in a World Cup over three and a half weeks, if they all get on and somebody makes a last-minute block or somebody misses a sitter in the opposition, suddenly you're world champions. And that's on the cards for, I would say, four, as you said, four or five teams, which makes it one of the most interesting and open World Cups we've ever had. Yeah, it does. And Luis Enrique has been a winner. And Spain, they've won the World Cup. They they got the pressure of never winning anything off the shoulders in in 2010. And these players grew up, and some of them played Within that, you know, Sergio Busquets played played in that team. One thing I like about Luis Enrique, he's not afraid to upset the the mainstream view. Um, quite famously, picked very few Real Madrid players. That's not because he's got a problem with Real Madrid. He played for Real Madrid. He was a great Real Madrid player. The fact that he went from Real Madrid to Barcelona as a player just shows what he's like. I will do whatever I want. Played with Kevin Moran, by the way, when he was at Sporting Gijón. Kevin was coming to the end of his career. Luis Enrique was 16, 17 years old, great young player. And um, the, the, the two of them both got on. With the media, he's quite interesting. He's decided to do a live stream himself. He, he doesn't like the Spanish media. I always remember when I, I went to his house and I walked with him and he said, I don't do many interviews. I, I don't like talking to the Spanish media uh, because if I do one, I've got to do the other. And they always twist the words. 
I felt very privileged, actually, to, to get an interview with him. I got lucky. I wrote to him and he wrote back to me. I wrote to him in Spanish. He replied to me in English. And I, I think he liked the idea of managing um, in England, and, and we spoke about that. But uh, I think he's a top, top manager. I, I actually hoped that he would get the Manchester United job after um, Ole Gunnar Solskjaer, Ralph Rangnick. He was my favourite. I'm absolutely happy with um, Eric Ten Hag. But Luis Enrique, who United were totally interested in, um, he always had the World Cup. His contract finishes after the, the World Cup, but he was never going to walk away from Spain in a World Cup year. And I, and I, I respect that. It's going to be very interesting to see. Like, um, I think they're the, one of the youngest age profiles, if not the youngest, is the third youngest. Um, and so you can see him taking this job on. But at the same time, you know, as you said, he's a, a, a man who is singular. And so he could easily walk away, especially if they win. Let, let's move on to the Manchester United situation. Um, a lot has happened. It's been, it's been quite the week. Um, the coincidental timing of the Ronaldo announcement and the Glazer story um, and the statement coming out from them um, I think has sent Manchester United uh, fans into a bit of an overdrive uh, what's your understanding of when the Glazers actually made the decision to sell the club does it trace back directly to the end of the European Super League or the, certainly the, the suspension of the European Super League plan yes because they wanted to join the European Super League they saw that as another revenue stream increased revenues and after that, they came out under a lot of pressure. They backtracked. They they basically admitted that they'd not invested enough into the stadium, uh, that Manchester United needed serious investment, spent a lot of money on players uh, over this summer, maybe too much money, maybe eating into next year's budgets, maybe overpaid for uh, players like Anthony. And it's sort of showing like it's... Um, the, 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 the signings were good under Eric Tenag. Manchester United have been good so far this season. Not great, but good, sufficient, passing the test um, so far. But the biggest story is is the ownership of the club and everything that they've done, um, for better or for worse, and they've done a lot of good things as well, or the club have, uh, it's always been under the cloud of the Glazer ownership. Very unpopular with fans. Always have been since that highly leveraged buyout. Very controversial takeover in 2005. Um my understanding is they've basically looked at what Chelsea went for. They've seen Liverpool go to market. They've seen the, the number of people who were prepared to bid for Chelsea. This wasn't speculation. These were hard bids. And Manchester United are far bigger than Chelsea. And United need investment, infrastructure. And there's another factor, and that's how can anyone go up against uh, teams which receive a form of state funding? It's almost impossible. So if you look at the best case example, Liverpool done really well, recruited well, new training ground, expanded Anfield sensibly, that's continuing, excellent manager in Jurgen Klopp. They've done miles better than Manchester United. But even they, how can they go up against Manchester City or Newcastle United or Paris Saint-Germain? It is almost impossible for anybody. So any potential suitor for Manchester United we'll also have to take that into account. This idea that, okay, the Glazers have gone, someone new is going to come in and everything's going to return to normal, I think that's a bit far-fetched. The, the, the football has changed an awful lot since 2005 when the Glazers took over Manchester United. Can we look into the fact that Liverpool are up for sale as well at the moment, Andy, as, as, as a factor? Because, I mean, I know United probably twice the value in terms of, you know, between six and eight billion uh, when or if they do uh, sell the club. But, 
is there something there are, are the Glazers trying to almost lure potential suitors from Liverpool over to United there's the, the I guess the the fact that they're one of the biggest clubs in the world the American interest there's talk of Amazon and Meta and Jim Ratcliffe as well uh, in Britain but do you see that as maybe a, a point as well that the fact that Liverpool are already up for sale means the Glazers had to act could be I'm not sure Manchester United are twice as big as Liverpool bigger Liverpool are huge. Manchester United and Liverpool are the two biggest clubs in England by a long, long way. You only have to see that where you live. I could go into any town, village or city and there would be pretty equal numbers of Manchester United and Liverpool fans uh, and and then the rest, whether that be um, Chelsea, Arsenal, Manchester City, they're a long, long way behind and that's not forgetting the people who support the local teams as well. Um, So, if Liverpool were half the price of Manchester United, that would be a very good price for, mm. for Liverpool because Anfield's going to hold 61,000 very soon. It's almost done. Old Trafford needs a serious redevelopment doing. Liverpool arguably have got a better team than Manchester United. Um, but United are, are massive. They're both massive. They're, I was in Scandinavia last weekend. It's Again, it's United and Liverpool. 46,000 paid-up members of the Scandinavian Supporters Club for Liverpool. I think it's 42,000 for Manchester United. I think the next one's 14,000. You'll get similar figures all over the world. And I know if teams are successful, they attract new fans. And you will see Manchester City shirts wherever because they've been a, a successful team. I think there's a sense of, with the Glazers, cash out now. They'll make a vast, vast profit on their initial investment. That makes me sick, if I'm honest. Um, but they've also been incredibly smart. Uh, they've seen an opportunity. They Everything they did was legal, unethical in my eyes, but legal. And they expanded Manchester United's revenues. They did some things which were very simple to monetize that global support, but others had not done it beforehand. I remember being in, in, in India in 2009 and seeing a billboard with um, a branded uh, vodka drink and all the Manchester United players around this drink at a time when Manchester United were world champions. And I just thought, you clever so-and-sos. And what they've done, rather than go to emerging economies and try and sell copies of the official Manchester United magazine or replica shirts, which they struggled to do, there was all kinds of um, supply line issues, all kinds of counterfeiting issues. I remember being in Thailand in 95 when the club were there and every copy of the Man United magazine, which was flying at the time, was a fake one. So what the Glazers did, they went to the big established companies in those countries and said, do you want to align your brand to us for a million dollars? Got the money in the bank. So simple when you think about it, but no one was doing it beforehand. And they divided the world up geographically. And the next thing, they had Chilean wine partners. They courted these companies in a really smart way. If you were the chief executive of a Chilean wine company, you received out the blue this beautiful box with a Manchester United shirt in and a football in and your logo in the middle of that. And that could be pretty attractive, maybe when United were a better team. Yeah, like that's the bit that is difficult, I think, for some Manchester United fans, Shane in particular here, to... Uh, it, it, like, look, you make the point that it is, it's is—it's relatively simple, and probably some other American franchises were doing this, and they looked at that, and they thought, we can monetize this. That's how these big businesses work. They're like, this big audience, what can we actually sell to them that will allow us to make more money? 
and it's grim when you're a football fan to think of your support being commodified like that but it was part of that globalisation trend at the time and I'm not giving them credit for that but I am saying that that's like whoever buys Manchester United and takes over next will find that their commercial arm is incredible at generating money and if it's somebody who has loads of money already the likelihood is that will get reinvested but if it's somebody else who comes in and decides to load the club with debt they'll still be able to do that again and that's why the uncertainty exists over what's coming next I suspect Yeah absolutely a um, lot of positivity among Manchester United fans with that announcement that they're prepared to, to sell um, because they're despised they're absolutely despised and I can totally understand that why uh, I, I remember the protests in 2004, 2005, thousands of Manchester United fans outside the ground and they've never really gone away. They've ebbed and flowed. That, that should never have allowed, been allowed to have happened, that takeover. Um, that, that, that buyout, you know, football clubs are, uh, are not like normal businesses, but it was allowed to happen. I remember going to Whitehall with other United fans to see representatives of the British government, October 2005, they made us a cup of tea and biscuits and said, you know, we're awfully sorry. And yes, we understand where you're coming from and we'll write a strongly worded letter. Nothing, nothing at all changed. With the commercial stuff, I don't have a massive problem if Manchester United have a Chilean wine partner. I'm more concerned about issues like ticket prices, ticket allocations, Old Trafford, training facilities. I don't mind if the Chilean wine partner pays for a new... Um, a new training ground or an expanded training ground. I've got no problem with that at all. For me, with the Glazers, the bigger issue in the first decade was fastly rising ticket prices. They surged between 05 and 010. Again, to be fair, they've they've barely gone up in a decade and pretty similar with other clubs as well. So they've not put the foot in it, like at Liverpool with that famous £77 ticket. And I got someone a face value ticket for a recent Man United game. Thirty-seven pound. He, he said, "Are you sure?" I said, "Yeah." Well, is this not a joke? No, it's thirty-seven pounds. Whoa! The problem is getting them tickets. That's why Old Trafford needs to be bigger. So commercially, that's the way football has gone. As long as um, the match-going fans are being treated w- with a respect, I don't have a, a, a huge problem if there's going to be a peanut partner in the Philippines. I really don't. Uh, Andy, the, the Glazers have appointed the um, this Rain Group as their financial advisors to handle this deal. The same group that that looked after the, the Chelsea sale. I guess the difference in the Chelsea sale was there were uh, sanctions and and with, with with it being Abramovich and they had to get a sale done by a, by a certain deadline. Do you expect this one, if it goes through, to to kind of be more protracted, dragged out, and for this to go on for quite some time? It could do. I don't know the answer to that. I'm going to speak to people today about that. Um, I don't think anybody knows the answer to that. We don't know how many suitors there are. We don't know um, what what they're asking for. You know, they, people might go to them and say, we're prepared to pay this, and the Glazers might have to an inflated price for their trophy asset, a profit-making asset, albeit one which is now in debt and needs investment. The share price surged with the announcement of this news, so that shows how the market feels about Manchester United, feels that there's future growth in, in football. Uh, I think the Glazers' ideal scenario is a, is a bidding situation, which you had at Chelsea. Um, from a fan's perspective, we need far better owners than the Glazers. Um, supporters have got to be at the heart uh, of, of what Manchester United do. And I, I don't want to sound idealistic there and unrealistic. They should be. Communications improved a lot with fans been some good 
Um, changes at Old Trafford, the Red Army and Stratford End uh, is a good thing. Things like drink prices. United were very good in lockdown, didn't furlough the staff like other clubs. Loads of good sort of micro projects going on, but always under the cloud of the, of the Glazer ownership. I think uh, the idea of uh, Sir Jim Ratcliffe owning Manchester United is a Mancunian. Grew up two two miles from where Newton Heath were formed in 1878. Uh, would be popular among fans, but again, you know, he's not got where he is by being a, a benevolent, kindly gentleman. He's he's been ruthless as well, and investors are going to almost certainly want to see a return, uh, which means that dream of some for, some form of fan ownership. Um, it remains a difficult one to achieve. Yeah, it's it's probably unlikely at this stage. Although it wouldn't be impossible if um, if a group was to emerge and try and raise money. Like it, it you know, the fans could borrow, uh, could find the markets to uh, lend them the money if they were being bankrolled by some former players, for example. If there was a consortium that was led that way, but I, that's kind of it. Probably pie in the sky. Although I'm sure some of the former players are thinking about it. We have seen in the US. Ownership groups emerge, which have like uh, a bunch of competing. Um, so Jay Z is apparently part of a group with Jeff Bezos that are interested in the Washington Commanders, even though they're not actually for sale yet, but they will be. Um, so we don't know what's going to happen. There could be a city state who are looking at Manchester United and go, "Well, I'd much rather have that than say Paris Saint Germain, or or maybe I'll have them both with a, a separate arm of this this country owning Paris Saint Germain and Manchester United." All of this is is still on the table, I suspect, at the moment. Yeah, and I don't think all of it would be popular either with Manchester United fans. Manchester United don't need anyone, actually. The club's big enough to stand on its own two feet. They don't need a benefactor. They don't need to be an arm of a, of a city-state. Um, but once them shares went to market in 1991, anybody was a, uh, anybody could buy them. Do you know the value of the club at that time? £38 million and the share offering wasn't taken up sufficiently by fans and had to be underwritten. I can't believe I'm saying that now. In there were mitigating factors at the time. I remember doing a piece on, on the um, share value around the year 2000, 2001, and at that stage, the um, the shop in Dublin, Arnott's, was quoted on the Irish stock market, and it was more expensive than Manchester United's. You, you would have had to pay more to buy Arnott's, which is a shop, than you would have had to pay to buy Manchester United. And obviously, that's what um, JP McManus and John Wagner spotted, and they bought into the club and sold out at like a nice, neat, tidy profit to the Glazers. I do wonder what life would have been like maybe if they'd um, given Alex Ferguson a share of the, the stud <laughs> fees for the Rock of Gibraltar and everybody was still together. Yeah, the Rock of Gibraltar and Ferguson's role, that's another, um, another conversation there. Football clubs for all their profile. Um, I remember reading a start a decade ago that Big Premier League football clubs um, have a se- same similar revenue to a large single supermarket, so they're not actually that big a business, but they they're growing and becoming quite big, and there are more profitable ways of um, of making money. However, what FSG and what the Glazers have done have shown that um, it can be extremely profitable for them if they sell out in the billions, then. It's way, way more than the hundreds of millions they borrowed money on and put money in themselves. Yeah. Um, for um, I, like, there's also a possibility that they're bought by a company. So um, Disney have just got a new CEO. There's talk of them trying to 
to survive to buy Netflix. Uh, like the market capitalization of those, I was looking that up, is 127 and 179 billion. So they could easily, it, it could easily be, Shane mentioned um, Meta, like not, not, not beyond the bounds of possibility that somebody goes and says, okay, actually, this makes perfect sense for my business. There's loads of video, it's, it's endless content. We'll distribute that exclusively on our platform. We'll drive subscriptions through that way, and the business will continue to make all the money that it makes through sponsorship, advertising, bums on seats, and uh, and prize money. Like, would would something like that be like slightly weird, but also more acceptable than being owned by the Saudis, for example? Depends how it's presented and what it's going to be. When Sky tried to take over Manchester United in 1998, partly for the reasons that you said, there were a lot of objections from Manchester United fans and, and that was stopped by the Monopolies and Mergers uh, Commission. Um, so times have changed again. It's got to be a realism here. It's just got, it's got to be better than the Glazers. I don't like the idea of the club being saddled um, with debt and Manchester United paying a billion pounds out in interest payments as has happened in the last um, 17 years. Um, it just makes me angry thinking that that takeover was ever allowed to happen. Equally, some of the other Vultures, opportunists um, are not the most edifying and equally they've not made the money by um, being kindly and soft in, in business either. It's, it's, it's a hard world out there. I'd be interested to see who comes forward, what they've got to present to the fans. And if you saw at Chelsea, they were putting their proposals forward and saying, we're going to do this, we're going to engage with fans like that. Uh, it's got to be more than tokenism. Um, Manchester United and every football club needs protecting to stop what has happened with the Glazers happening again Andy good stuff we let you go thanks a million for joining us cheers thank you it's uh, Andy Mitten giving us his thoughts there this morning at 8.40 if you want to get in touch you can get us on WhatsApp 0879-180-180 that's the WhatsApp number or uh, you can leave a comment on the YouTube stream and we're brought to you live each morning with Gillette in association with Movember effortless shave magnificent mo you can sign up or donate now at movember.com John Duggan good morning to you how are you Jared and Shane how is the form pretty good World Cup's in full flow it is it's every blade of grass that I'm seeing at the moment um, so the circadian rhythms are challenged but it's the World Cup. Uh, Brazil-Serbia is going to be great, lads, this evening. 7 o'clock start in Qatar. I don't even, I don't even know where these, these stadiums are. I just say Qatar. I don't say wherever they are. Uh, Lucille or wherever. But um, what are we going to see from Brazil? Well, a lot of division in the country, obviously, with the election. Interesting that Neymar was back in Bolsonaro. And uh, there's arguments over the jersey and the Brazilian FA wanting to depoliticise the jersey. Uh, the Canary Yellow, which I might buy actually one of them tomorrow. Looks nice. I've been to Brazil a couple of times. I've, I've got I've some Brazilian friends. Um, I might buy the blue one because they're my pick for the tournament. So might, blue might one is, The blue one is the best. I mean, I know the traditional one is amazing, but the blue one is like, oh yeah. Yeah, big time. Um, so Brazil, uh, what is he going to do in terms of the tactics? Obviously, you've had Tim Vickery talking about it on the show. Is he going to play a 4-1-4-1? Um, I think Richarlison will start. Neymar, you've got... Uh, Vinicius Jr. and Rafinha possibly on the in the wing positions. Lucas Paqueta has generally been playing uh, most of the Brazilian matches. Casemiro will be probably the holder. Uh, Multiago Silva play. You'd have to expect so as the captain, whether he should or not. And obviously Alisson and go. I think with Serbia is, uh, I think they're better than they were four years ago. We obviously know them through the group for the Republic of Ireland, but they've got a real cult hero in Dragan Stojkovic, possibly the best player Yugoslavia's ever had in the contemporary era. Uh, and now Serbia, who've never got to the last 16 of a World Cup when you consider what their neighbours, Croatia, have done, it's an interesting stat. Alexander Mitrovic, I think, is fit. Dusan Vahevic, 
uh, Luka Jovic, lots of uh, attacking players that are that are talented. Uh, Dusan Tadic obviously is very good with the assists. Um, so it'll be, it'll be a fascinating battle because I was at the game four years ago in Russia and Brazil just completely dominated Serbia. Uh, but we just don't know, given what we've seen with Argentina and Germany so far in this tournament, what can happen. I've seen a lot of people kind of touting, if Brazil do go all the way, Casemiro is a potential player of the tournament. I think people are sleeping on Fred, lads. Fred will, in all likelihood in that four two three one, be the guy sitting beside Casemiro. And, I mean, Fred's a guy that follows instructions to the T. Uh, of course plays with Casemiro at club level now as well I don't know I, I, we've been kind of chatting this morning John about Serbia being like it could be a, it could be one of those games that there is a upset mild upset because if Serbia were to get a result it wouldn't be the greatest shock we've seen what they can do in Ireland's group in the, the, the Nations League Brazil well. haven't lost a World Cup group game since 1998 <laughs> uh, which against Norway um, I think a lot of the possession is really really important and how you use it we saw that with Spain yesterday now they were playing a team that were completely inferior to them but they did 82% of the ball and it's how you use that possession and, and dominate the ball with that possession that I think is going to be very important. Uh, so Switzerland and Cameroon, 10 o'clock this morning in the same group, Group G. The Swiss have been very uh, solid and cohesive and very much about the collective. Um, do they have a striker? Um, I'm not so sure, but uh, Granit Xhaka has played well. Fabian Scher, you've got Manuel Akanji, obviously, of, of Manchester City as well in there. So Cameroon, hard to know what they're going to produce. Um, they're lost in semi-finals of the African Nations Cup. And since 1990, when they wowed the world, they've been pretty average at World Cups. They got Rigor Song managing them. And then we got Uruguay, South Korea at one o'clock today. I think Uruguay are a team that everybody's fascinated to see how the blend of experience and youth is going to go with Nunez and Valverde, really exciting players. And you have the old uh, stagers like Cavani, Suarez, Godin, uh, Muslera. So that'll be interesting. Their new manager, Diego Alonso, he's won seven of the last nine games with them. Um, so that'll be fascinating. Youngman Son is going to be fit for South Korea. Uh, can they do it? Japan probably unlikely. Um, and Portugal Ghana at four o'clock. Ronaldo. You know, so everywhere you look, there are uh, good narratives. Absolutely, mm-hmm. uh, Portugal are a very good narrative. Once again, the question mark is with them: Are they as as good as they could be with the players they have? Um, when you think about the go through like Ruben Diaz, João Cancelo, Bernardo Silva of Manchester City, Bruno Fernandes, all these younger players like João Paulinho is playing so well for Fulham. Nuno Mendes, Vitinha, Rafael Leao, like they're really quality players. Mm. But can they um, be a team at this World Cup? And will Ronaldo be a cloud? Uh, that's an interesting question, you know. Dan, I've had a poor enough 2022. Yeah, the like they lost to Comoros at the Africa Combinations. They've got Chris Hutton now in the backroom team. That's the Irish link. They've got Tarek Lamptey, Mohamed Salisu there, could feature. Thomas Parshi, obviously, they're a star player. He's playing well for Arsenal at the moment, the IU brothers. So, a lot going on, lads. Yesterday, but Japan were brilliant into the second half. Obviously, Spain now. Hard to really know how good they are, but um, going to have to bypass that midfield to beat Spain. Mm. Um, Pedri and Gavi just complement each other so well. Yeah, it's the, it, you just got to disrupt them, don't you? Uh, what else? Morocco, I think, could trouble Belgium. I think Belgium were ordinary last night. So I think Morocco-Belgium would be an interesting game. And Canada-Croatia, or I think Canada were quite naive. Um, I don't know why John, uh, Jonathan David didn't take the penalty. I don't know why Alfonso Davies took the penalty, but um, Belgium, I don't think, are going to make any waves at this World Cup. So that's the, the vibe, folks, really. That's what's going on. Um, how are you basing your day? So 10, 1, 4 <laughs> and 7. Like how, do you, how do you squeeze in a walk in between, a bit of food in between? Or how do, oh, you, uh, do you avoid one of the games? Obviously, you're working for, for a couple of the years. What I only know happening is I'm watching, obviously, the game in here, and then I'm going home, and then I'm watching... 
part of the second game, and then maybe like I just can't stay awake, and then I wake up, and I'm just doing stats the whole day anyway. So I'd end up after nine o'clock, I'd end up making sure that I've got the stats done for the next day, mm. and then having all the lineups and stats done from the day itself. So it's just a constant uh, were as it were, but it's a very exciting thing to be doing. It's actually quite nice that the late game is seven p.m. and not you know it could be eight. It could be like it, I think it makes a world of difference that it's an hour earlier. We get to almost unwind and not be too late to but bed. I'm just getting completely sucked into it. So I'd be going and doing a lot of uh, research on players and then I'd be just like going into Wikipedia and I'd type in 1978 World Cup and I'd type in 2002 World Cup and I'd be going through what happened in the group stage and, and I'm wondering, like, the, I've been going through Spain's record. Spain didn't, the last time Spain didn't qualify for World Cup was 1974. You'd be like going through all these little pieces of statistics. Um, Brazil have been at every World Cup mm. since the very first one. They'd never missed a World Cup. You'd be just like picking up these little, uh, tidbits of stats and stuff, which is which is um, quite interesting. But um, for me, anything else going on, JD? Uh, well, Ronan O'Gara has he been treated unfairly? It seems like he is. Um, they're really throwing the book at him in France. Banned until February. Yeah, fifteen thousand euro fine. Seems a bit excessive for me. Missing all the Champions Cup games. I guess the difference in France is that the managers, unlike uh, over here, where the managers are up in the up in the box. They're on the sideline in France, so there is that potential for hostilities and for tensions and for things to be said that can be quite clearly heard. Um, so I guess he's a he's a victim of his environment in some ways as well, Ronan. Like he wears his heart in his sleeve. Um, but ten weeks, yeah, missing all the Champions Cup games seems seems fairly drastic. Obviously, we don't know what was said, but I mean, it's uh, it's quite a substantial. Ban, isn't it? It's obviously cumulative, so they 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 ratchet it up every time you get done. Yeah. Um. So looking forward to hearing what he has to say about it next time he's on. Yeah. Uh. We have the OTV World Cup brief on our podcast network, folks. We're doing a daily look ahead first thing every morning to what's going on each day. So it's worth checking out. And also mark your card. We had a very good uh, start to our racing slot with Katie Walsh last week. I, I tipped a winner, and she had a one of our dad's horses, Ted, finished third at nine to one. Um, so that's uh, coming up tomorrow on the podcast network as well. We're looking ahead to Navin this weekend in the jump season, get back into gear and Constitution Hill will run for Nicky Henderson on Saturday in the fighting fifth hurdle at Newbury. So plenty of stable tours, plenty of um, people getting their horses to follow for the year for the jump season as it gets back into gear. There's a meeting at Thurlis today. So uh, lots of whispers, lots of talk about, well, who's the superstar, William Mullins Yard and um, definitely worth following the podcast when we uh, roll it out each week, the Market Card podcast on the uh, OTB network. Yeah, the countdown to Cheltenham is underway. Yes, it is. It is. Uh, right, also check out the lunchtime wrap today, which brings you all the latest sports news. It's with thanks to Deliveroo. Check out the app for some great match day meal deals across the World Cup. Deliveroo, food, we get it. Up next, Matt Williams joins us on the line. First, have a look at this. New York Times journalist Jerry Longman joined Joe on last night's show to talk about the situation in Iran and attitudes towards the Iranian players staying silent during the national anthem against England. Um... The football, Iranian football team known as uh, Team Meli has generally historically been um, seen to represent the people of Iran, not the government. But uh, it, it's sort of um, the Iran of everyone's imagination. But now, given the unrest in the country, the team represents kind of the divisiveness of the country, not the unity of the country. And so, uh, you know, what you saw, uh, what you saw on um Monday uh, during the playing of the national anthem was actually a, a more complicated situation, I think, than than um, than appeared originally. So, uh, you know, there there have been 
there have been a number of people who believe Iran should not be at the World Cup. Um, there are some who uh, believe they should go and, and um, you know, perform some act of civil disobedience, that kind of thing. So uh, some people I appreciated, um, I think, that not singing the national anthem, not celebrating after either goal. Uh, other Some activists thought it was too little, too late. Uh, and actually, in the crowd, while some people booed, um, some people also chanted without honor. And it's unclear whether they were chanting that at the players because they didn't want them to be there or just the idea in general of Iran uh, being at the World Cup. We actually got reports that in, in a mall in Tehran um, that people were cheering every English goal. And uh, it's you know unclear exactly why, but. Perhaps, uh, you know, some people have suggested that the, the worse the team does, the worse that the Islamic regime looks. Or it just could have been, um, you know, just a, a kind of a protest against the team being there in the first place. But but the uh, so the national team has been uh, has been uh, not singing the anthem at, at various matches before mm-hmm. uh, the World Cup, both the national team and also the domestic uh, league teams, and they haven't been celebrating goals. So this, I think, was sort of viewed as sort of the least, sort of the least thing you could do, right? Or, or, or it, that you should do at least something, and that was the, sort of the least thing. Some people are demanding more. Okay. Uh, and as I said, some people don't want the team to be there in the first place. You can hear that full interview on the OTB football feed and your podcast network. Some uh, breaking news on how the man of the match with the how did how did Kevin Kevin De Bruyne is holding it there, going nah, not really <laughs> sure about this. And then he tw- did he say it or did he tweet it like I, this shouldn't have been me? I, he says I don't think I played a great game. I don't know why I got the trophy. Maybe it's because of my name, <laughs> which is a fair point. Colin has tweeted me um, to say FIFA man of the match is a public Twitter vote. Ah. Total nonsense, pure name recognition. That's a bit ridiculous. Whether or not it's true, yeah. I believe it now. I'm going to go with it. Well, even Timo Court was pretty bloody famous. <laughs> yeah, like man of the match in the Champions League final, won the game. Anyway, right. Yeah. Uh, I should, we should have mentioned as well Arsenal playing Juventus in the Champions League tonight in Turin they're top of the group after two games but obviously the big news is that Beth Mead did her ACL in the 3-2 home defeat versus Manchester United they'll also uh, be without Leo Williamson and their captain Kim Little as well and their manager and they're coming up against their former manager too so uh, that is the Champions League tonight in Turin a reminder OTBIM brought to you with Gillette in association with Movember effortless shave magnificent mo you can sign up or donate now at movember.com Matt Williams is with us Matt good morning to you good morning Jay. good morning Shane good to be with you you've had a, an interesting week um, did you turn off your social media are you aware of the um, the, the brouhaha I turned it off, but uh, I have wonderful people like you reminding me all the time, Joe. So it's it's uh, it's good of you. <laughs> Very good. So, um, what what what's your instinct now about the the discussion that's happening around concussion and and your take on it in particular? I, I look, Joe. Look, my point being right now, leading the discussion on concussion is journalists and lawyers. With science last. We have to reverse that. Science has to come in front. That was my whole point. I didn't think Nick White should have returned to the field. My point was I am not in a position to decide if that's right or wrong. Now, th- that was it, and that's offended a whole lot of people. And, and look, if, if they're offended, you know, I can't control that. But um, you're not qualified, I'm not qualified 
the vast majority in the sporting community are not qualified to rule on this. We have to turn it to science, and we need really good science, not half-baked science that starts with a proposal that we're going to find a problem. Let's set out to find a problem because we have to understand that in science, correlation uh, does not mean causation. Okay, so in other words, just just because you get some numbers doesn't you can't relate that back. We I have had numerous uh, concussions from the time I was a teenager until I was in my thirties. My generation was managed very badly. We were put back into the game straight away. When we were older, we usually consumed alcohol straight afterwards on the Saturday night, and then we were back in full contact on the Tuesday. I have skin in this game, but I will not have journalists and lawyers trying to tell us what the science is. That's my point. Can I now, can we can we tease that out? Because that, that's interesting, right? And I guess there's there's one other aspect to this that I think is important to just bring into the conversation, and that's the education of the general population. And yeah. so when people are watching at home, like we probably don't have live access to the medical staff's conversations around what's happening. So I, I would feel like there is a, an onus on all of us as part of the the entertainment industry to amplify some of the the issues around this. And and I think oh, that's that's important. Where I'm you know, I'm I'm not a scientist, but um but we have talked to a lot of scientists about the issues around this. And even if there's doubt about what we think, it's important sometimes to amplify that doubt in a responsible way. Uh, exactly. Um, the, the trouble we have now is we have fear. So what what do journalists want? And I'm not suggesting um, yourself or, or this program, but generally journalists want sensationalism, and that creates fear, right? That, and that and that has happened. There is huge fear in the community over this. This started with a movie concussion. It's all moved down the track. From that fear. Um, Lawyers, lawyers can come in and, you know, really try and create some money from that fear. And in all this process, we haven't really got all the answers. We, I'm not, and I, people have made out I'm trying to say can, uh, head injury is not real. I mean, that is just, you know, that's tripe. That's not what I was saying. Uh, and I have never said that. If you read any of the articles I've written over the years in the Irish Times, you can see I am saying. I, I'm totally understand that's the case. I can I I am part of the of the story. I am part of that story. What I am saying is that the fear has overtaken uh, what what we need to do now. In the Nick White scenario, let's come let's roll back a bit. Dave Parecki, the Australian hooker, in the opening twenty minutes, got a bang. We couldn't see what happened on the field, and he was removed. He failed his test and was removed from the game. The process worked, the science worked, the player was protected. Now, what happened with Nick White, as it transpired, was the um, match doctor. So remember, this is an independent doctor. Everyone started saying, started saying, oh, as soon as he got injured, you could see the Australian physio talking on his uh, microphone as if there was some conspiracy theory going on that they could manage to get him off. I mean, it's just, you know, again, ignorance. He is talking to... The coach saying we're losing, White is going off for a HIA, we need to get organised. And then you see Dave Rennie saying, well, get the, get, uh, get the next player organised, let's get our replacement scrum half on the field. That's what that was about. But as soon as Nick White walks off the field, 
is handed to the independent referee. So what occurred was the re- independent referee was looking at Nick White tackling uh, Mac Hanson where he hit the ground. They thought that was the injury. Now, it wasn't the case. He bumped. He hit Josh Van der Fleur's uh, knee. So when he came off, yet he passed his HIA. So at what point do we as rugby people intervene into that science? Does dust the pitches make that right? Now, now the referee, the, the match, of, uh, match doctor has said that he didn't see that and subsequently that's moved. My whole point in this process is it has to be medical. Now, people come and say, oh, you can't be medical. Well, if it's not medical, what is it? Do we, do we say it worked with Dave Parecki? But we don't like we don't want it. It didn't work with with Nick White. We changed. So it's it's a it's look it, to me, it's a storm in a teacup about people jumping up and down about an error that a doctor made. Okay, there's a, there's, a, there's a lot in this, right? And and just to spill back to the the, the fear and um, I I I mean maybe maybe I'm biased because I'm in the journalism profession. I don't really believe that journalists gain much from fear. Um, I, I'd have to say that the people we've spoken to. Like so, we had um, Nobby Styles' son John Styles on, and his dad um, suffered dementia, and they think it's connected to football. Uh, Dawn Assel, um, uh, Jeff Assel's daughter, has been on the show, and they—they're not. We're not generating fear by speaking to those people. We're trying to tell their stories where they don't believe that the sport of football, in particular, was responsible to their parents. And their concern, Chris Sutton has spoken on the show as well about his dad and, and the concerns that he has for the concussions that footballers suffered when they were when they were heading uh, heavy footballs. And the fact that kids still today are practising headers under six, under eight, under ten. And we're not really sure of what the science is. I, I think to your point, the science hasn't fully caught up yet to prove causation. But there's a concern that heading the ball repeatedly might lead to brain injuries and I think that's the the grey area here where if I'm a parent I'm concerned that rugby seemed to get it right in one incident at the start of the game but didn't get it right in the second incident and if that was one off I'd say sure it's a storm in a teacup but unfortunately these bits where players are concussed and subsequently are removed and stood down but yet they have been allowed to go back in would suggest to me that the process isn't working Either, either from the medical side or the science side or the, the common sense side, that whatever, whatever the coagulation of those um, bits are isn't working at the moment. And I think that's where the conversation could get to. Joe, I, I think you're absolutely right with the head injuries in football and hitting the ball in any sport. Um, you know, like I, 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 still, I was in Dublin last weekend and I saw kids riding around on bikes with no helmets. Like head injury to children uh, is most likely to occur on bikes or skateboards, horses, that sort of thing where there is a considerable fall. But it's the accumulative effect of of uh, knocks to the brain. So, yeah, look, I think we should, but personally, and, and again, you know, I, I certainly think we should take a stop heading the ball uh, in, in junior, junior football. There is a whole lot of things we should be doing so uh, that's one side of the story and what's happened to Nobby Styles and these guys I know is true because there's there's scientific papers one of the first scientific papers written on this was way way back in the 50s and it, it uh, investigated um, uh, 
uh, a whole lot of former professional soccer players in England that had dementia in, and they were in, a, in a, uh, homes and they were from the 1930s. And, it, and they, they came up with the idea that it was from heading wet, heavy leather balls that they played with in those days, the constant heading of the balls and head clashes as you went for the ball. So we know that's, that historically that that's the case and we should stop do things to stop it. We, we are trying to stop those things in rugby. Now, in sport, if you're going to play sport, unfortunately things occur. So let's, let's get to that point. It's how we manage it. It's how we manage it. Was the process that Nick White um, went through correct? Well, the, on, on certain aspects you could say it wasn't because they missed – the, the fact that his head hit Josh Van der Fleur's knee, right? So we've got to say they missed that, that's for sure. But then he passes his HIA. That's where it gets complex. And then people say to me, well, HIAs, the HIA tests are not perfect. Okay, I'll, I'll accept that. But then what do you do with Dave Parecki who fails his HIA? This all points to me, Jer, that we, we, we need to increase our, um, our vigilance. So this was a, there was a visual missing of Nick White, and we need to increase the science. The more we increase it, the more we protect the players, the better. But there, here is another important point. There was no malice in that on Saturday, there was, on Saturday night. There was no way anyone was trying to game the system. There was no way people were trying, oh, we're trying to put him back on. That was false. There was a loophole in the system. And I will say in rugby, in, in, in the defence of the doctors, Across the season, they are getting the vast, the overwhelming majority of these cases right. There is a supreme um, caution now out there in rugby that there wasn't a decade ago. And I also have to say in the defence of the doctors, I work with a lot of doctors in four different countries. I never met one that didn't put the welfare of his players number one, absolutely number one. Was that an error? Well, obviously, looking back, some people, you know, Nick White shouldn't have got on the field. In defence of the doctor, he passed his HIA. Again, where does that leave us? We, we can't have it both ways. We can't say the science works for, for Dave Parecki and it doesn't work for there. We, we, we've got to just follow the science and lead it. That's not going to be an easy journey. That's not going to be perfect. And there's an example on the weekend. But it's much better than journalists and lawyers leading it than, 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 uh, and having science last. We have to have science first. Can you understand, um, I guess, Matt, why, why it was the story out of the weekend? Like, I suppose we, we talk about that word fear and it often comes up, parents of, of young kids, they're sending yeah. them out to play rugby. There is that fear of sending them out because of, the, I guess, the, the number of concussions in the game at the moment. Like, I guess since the weekend, can you see how the Nick White issue has been the story out of the match as opposed to you know, anything that anything else that happened on the pitch? Yeah, we made it the story. <laughs> and I said that at the time. Andrew Trimble said it when we were on TV. He said, if we leave with this, we're going to make it the story. Sure enough, we did. Um, and it, and that's a shame because it was a story, but we, we made it by televising it, the story. There's no two ways about that. Um, and, and look, rugby needs to front it up, and I guess we are, by, rugby is fronting it up. But... And this is my fear. Look, look, kids, in in sport right now, we're not competing against football or basketball. This is not this is not rugby against other sports. 
we're competing against apathy. We need children playing sports. We need children putting down devices. We need children turning off laptops, turning off TVs, going outside and being active, not to play for Ireland, not, not to win competitions, but to be healthy. We have an obesity crisis in society, Western society, absolute obesity crisis. I'm seeing kids in Australia at the age of 13 and 14 that can barely run because they're caught up in apartments, not getting out and doing stuff. That's that's the truth. I've physically seen that. And now on top of that, and, and, and then you have the social aspect of getting on with people, of communicating, again, of turning off phones. We need this for society. And we're putting fear into junior sport that shouldn't be there. Sh- junior sport should be as safe as we can make it. And the, the, if I'm a professional rugby player, I sign up for it. If I'm a boxer, you know, I, I step in that ring, I sign up for it. That's okay. It's your brain, you do what you want with it. It's your body, you do what you want with it. But we shouldn't be making it so fearful because it's wrong. It's a lie to make it this fearful that parents are not wanting their kids to play junior sport. Yeah, I, that, is, I, it, that is the tragedy in this, this I, process. I think you're, you're talking there about the principle of informed consent. Really, I you know I don't think 16 year olds fully understand when they're signing up to head the ball or to play rugby what the, the long-term dangers are. I, the, only, the only thing I'd, I'd say about that too... Jim, is if that, I just interrupt you there, though, it's their parents. Their uh, parents have to... It, it's, it's not the kids I'm worried about. The kids want to play. It's their parents. Well, so we have to educate their parents. I, 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 I think that's exactly the point. I do think too that sometimes we need to intervene when players are making decisions in the immediate short term. Because if you ask a player... 100%. Like there's, there's that, there was that survey done years ago. If I pr- give you a gold medal now, but you're going to die in 10 years, how many athletes will take it? And at the time, the figure was off the charts. It was something like 80% of, of athletes were like, yeah, I'll take a gold medal. Of course I will, because that's their, that's their identity. And, and so many athletes you speak to in their 40s regret the level of commitment that they put into at the detriment of like relationships, uh, personal development. So that's the bit where... Um, I'm, to, to go back to your point about the science, like what science do you feel we need to 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 lead and to because um, like we do speak to the scientists and, and in fairness we had um, the guys from Mickey Collins from UPMC on who was like, look, we think concussion is very treatable. We want everybody who gets concussed to get the right treatment, and you know nine times out of ten we're going to get them back playing the sport. And and that was a, a story that kind of shocked a lot of people to hear somebody saying, I've dealt with literally thousands of concussions over a decade and we've had great outcomes in it. We, we covered that story and we covered it really well. Um, so, you know, we, we are offering the scientists who tell the, the positive outcome stories a platform as well. But I'm just, I'm not sure that, um, you know, journalists having conversations about it is damaging to the sport or creating this climate of fear. Um, well, I... I can tell you that, um, and and I, I I don't listen to all the show. I follow your show at the, at the station. I don't listen to all the. Obviously, you can't physically listen to them all, um, but I, I do know on an, on a number of other platforms, um, BBC in particular, they do lead with some very troubling um, stories on it, and that has created fear in the community now not every journalist and not every story obviously again we're talking extremes here there 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 needs to be some balance but the stories of saying that of saying you know i I don't want to be somehow i've found myself in this position where i'm almost talking against all this and i I don't want that i've been trapped into i've been trapped into this myself yeah uh, and I will say, I thought we were coming on the show to talk about yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. I know. Just because here I am, we spent 15 minutes talking about concussion. 
which I am not an expert in. I am not an expert. I am not the scientist to be talking about this. I am a coach. I've had concussions. I'm highly interested. I've done my own little bit of research and I observe society. Um, if we come back to what we were saying, I encouraged my son to play rugby. I encouraged all my children to play sport. Now, he, he didn't love the game the way I love it and he has stopped playing. He had great fun. He has great friends and he stopped playing when he was 19 or 20. That's his choice. But he is socially uh, um, well-adjusted. He uh, is very healthy. He has uh, a, a good, you know, he, he's not obese. He's, he's, he's got a good physique, he's, as in he's healthy physique. He's good body weight. He's got a good picture about himself. So you got the that's benefits of the sport, yeah. Absolutely. And that's what I'm saying, Joe. I'm not talking about, about elite end sport. There's, there's two, this, this is damaging um, people getting involved in community sport that are never going to be international players, that are never going to do. And I agree with your comments about um, elite end of sport. Look, to, to make it in the elite end of sport, you've got to be obsessed and you've got to be – it's not a normal lifestyle. You know, Steve Gerrard said once, to be a professional sportsman is a very abnormal uh, – sports person is a very abnormal lifestyle. You have to be obsessed. You have to have a touch of, of the obsession about you, and I know I've got that in me, and it's, it's, it can be very dangerous. And if you, when we talk to a lot of the guys when we retire, we all often speak about how obsessed and selfish you are. You have to be a very selfish person. Now, that's one end of society, and they're the people that make bad decisions about, about their health and brain injury, they want to get back, especially in rugby. You know, if you're a 100-metre sprinter, that doesn't, doesn't affect you. But that's why we have to protect them in rugby. That's where the science comes in to protect people. That's the discussion on Nick White. But the discussion on Nick White, unfortunately, is, dis- is discouraging, or, or Nobby Styles, is discouraging parents allowing their children at 10 or 11 to go and play a, a community sport. That's the damage to me. That's the real damage, and we have to try and avoid that. Yeah, and look, I suppose, not to relitigate that, I guess um, I would say having these conversations is forcing world rugby into acting in a way that might actually end up making it much easier for parents to go, yeah, I, I, I trust that organisation, I think they're on top of it, and they're, you know, in fairness to them, they're taking it seriously. You would say that part of them taking it seriously has been the fact that these cases are brewing. Certainly with the NFL, they weren't going to do anything until... The, um, the players started, like, in many cases, killing themselves and leaving their brains to science. So it, I, I, know, I know you're saying it shouldn't be the lawyers, but sometimes, unfortunately, society changes because the lawyers take a case, the case gets won, and everybody goes, maybe we should fix this to prevent ourselves from being open to litigation again. Oh, Jim, there's so much I want to say about the lawyers. Will, we, the case. will we talk about the rugby? We can't. I, I can't. Yeah, fair enough. Will we talk, about, will we talk about the rugby instead? To, to finish, dear, yeah, we will, mate. Yeah. Finish, to finish on this, finish on this. So everyone is clear. Everyone is clear. Head injury is real. We need to. We need to uh, absolutely look after people. That is. That is the case because I'm in that case. Second part is science has to lead it, and the third part is we are going to make errors on the journey. Saturday night, where Nick White that that can be conceived as an error, and we're still up there saying whether it was an error because he passed his HIA, no, nothing else. So there, there, there's the, he, we saw him bang his head, he passed his HIA. Dave Parecki didn't pass his HIA. So we still have more to do with the science to protect the players. That's the point. Not coaches, not journalists, not lawyers, scientists. 
and we need to listen to that science. Sorry, mate. No, fair I, enough. You dragged me into that, Joe. Yeah, you well, wait, I, I thought it was, I thought it was important to... Run out some walls, but here we are. Well, I did, I did think it was important and to I'll give you an opportunity to... I'll turn off my Twitter for another week. Yeah, fair enough. I know, I, I, look, um, I, I thought it was important that you get the opportunity to explain that because, um, you know, uh, there's, there's been a backlash to your comments and, um, you know, sometimes it's difficult to get the full breadth of your thoughts across um, in a short period of time. So, and I, look, I've no doubt you'll get sucked into writing about this over the next few months too. So I look forward to um, further thoughts. Either that or you're like, never again. I'm not going near it, and, and I've got to say to all those people that, you know, threw things at me, um, look, you know, you're, you're more, than, more than entitled to your opinion. But anyone that starts talking against science in this, you're wrong. Right? Anyone that goes against the science. And me too. If I've gone against the science, I'm wrong, and I'll I'll go back. You've got to follow medical science, not anything else. Um, how did Ireland play over the three games? Will Will Andy Farrell be happy or a bit concerned about the patterns of play that emerged um, from games one, two, and three? At the end of that, when he's going, okay, we're we're trending in a direction. Is that direction good? All good? Mm, a bit up in the air. Um, I've got to get my thoughts together now after going through all that. <laughs> Mate, look, I, look you, you can't finish a season being number one in the world um, without giving great praise and um, kudos to the whole organisation. The 12 months from November last year to where we are now has been a radical change, not, not a, a revolution, not an evolution. And after that radical change last November, the, the team has progressed and grown and developed and moved forward. It's been, um, it's been a superb 12 months. You know, only a loss to France and Eden Park uh, against New Zealand. It's staggering. The, the one and, – and so we have to celebrate that and we do have to um, praise everyone involved with it. The really interesting point where world rugby is now – the top there is there's nothing between the top ten teams. And let's let's just look at last Saturday night's opponents, Australia, who are now ranked eighth, uh, which is the lowest they've I think it's the lowest they've ever been in the world rankings. Now they've lost to one, two, and three in the world this season. They've lost to Ireland, France, and New Zealand. New Zealand by one point, France by one point, Ireland by three points. There is nothing between the top eight to ten teams, there is a, there's a cigarette paper. On any given day, anyone can boot each other. Now, so what does that mean? It's Ireland have got nothing, cannot rest on their laurels. France are also on the uh, 13 winning, uh, a 13-game winning streak. So uh, that makes it, uh, puts Ireland in a really good place, but there is absolutely no security in that place. Everyone around them is capable of booting them, on any given day, which is wonderful for, for the game, wonderful for a World Cup year coming up and really exciting for the next six nations because it is exceptionally close and tight at the top of world rugby. We, we've kind of touched on this this week, uh, Matt, since the weekend and, and you know Jack Crowley has uh, had to step in when, when Johnny Sexton was, was pulled out very late. Ross Byrne really stepped up with that kick late on as well on, on Saturday night. Do, do you think it's the case that heading into the Six Nations we need those players, those understudies, to have had that experience of being on the pitch in big games. Like, should there be moments during the Six Nations where, you know, those players are given a chance? Johnny obviously won't want to to step aside, but heading into a World Cup, you need to have that strength and depth to win. 
Oh, absolutely. And that's been our fault at numerous World Cups. You only have to look, you know, Ian Madigan had to step in uh, against Argentina from memory. It was 2015. You know, when, when or if uh, uh, Johnny Sexton, who without doubt remains at the peak of his powers, but his body is 37 years old. And if he gets injured at the World Cup, he'll be 37. If he gets a slight injury like he did on Saturday, what happens? What if what happens? That's in the warm up before they play South Africa. What if it's in the warm up for the quarterfinal? One of Ireland's great problems it, it can be um, encapsulated in Joey Carberry's career, where he up until last year, even though he had 34, 32 caps, 30-ish caps, only four of those were against Tier One nations. And sometimes we're given the caps in, in the Six Nations against Italy. You, you know, you, the only way you learn to deal with the pressure and learn to be on the big stage is to be on the big stage. And there's without doubt that helped Crowley. Uh, and my, I don't think he's the answer just yet, but he is a really promising player. He's a player of the future. And he did a, great, a really competent job in very difficult circumstances on Saturday. He will have uh, learnt from that and grown and moved forward, which is really, really great. As did Ross Byrne coming on. So I still think we haven't seen the best of Ross Byrne on the international stage. He's superb with Leinster. If we just looked at provincial form, he would be start, he would be on the bench every time because he is playing superb rugby in that system. He just hasn't done it at an international level. So it, it, it's, it is definitely good. Uh, McCluskey was great. Was, O'Brien was great. Was, uh, Finley Bielham's been fantastic for that. Uh, all those players that played it across the series that got their chance against South Africa, to a lesser extent Fiji and Australia, they're going to stand us in great stead, really, really good stead. Matt, we leave it there. Good stuff. Thanks a million. Cheers. Pleasure. It's uh, Matt Williams there giving us some thoughts this morning at 19 minutes past nine. If you want to get in touch, 0879-180-180 is the WhatsApp number or you can leave a comment on the YouTube stream. Now, Brayburn Coffee is the official coffee partner of OTB. The This festive season is officially here, so why not enjoy a shot of gingerbread goodness in your Brayburn Coffee today, available at Apple Green locations nationwide. Here's what's on OTB Sports Radio for you across the day. Cor Staunton is OTB Gold at one o'clock. Leaders' questions with Stuart Lancaster at three. Competitive obsession We've just been talking about it. That's our retro panel at four. And Brian O'Driscoll meets Ethan Asewa is our uh, OTB Gold at six. And the show is live tonight from Nathan, alongside John Giles, as usual, on a Thursday. Plus Kevin Caban checked in from Qatar and plenty more besides. You can follow OTB across all our social channels and subscribe to the OTB Podcast Network for all the best in the latest sports content. Back after the very short break with the newly appointed Tipperary Senior Hurling Captain, Noel McGrath. OTB. A.M. It's 20 minutes past nine. I'm delighted to say we're joined by Tip Captain Noel McGrath. Noel, good morning to you. How are you? Good, you're now on yourself. Yeah, pretty good. Um, is captaincy something that you've been looking forward to? Is it something you're going to enjoy, do you think? Yeah, look, it's it's a, it's a lovely honour to be asked to, to do the job. Um, and yeah, it's it's definitely something I'll be looking forward to. Um, it's it's a big honour to captain uh, your county or your club and uh, to be given the chance to do it for 2023 is a is a nice honour and something that I'll be looking forward to um, when the season rolls around. Who were the the captains, the best captains you would have played with coming through? Because you've you've literally had some of the best captains in uh, hurling history, right? Yeah, look, I suppose when I started, um, Conor O'Mahony was was tip captain for a year or two, and then Owen Kelly. Um, was captain in 2010, obviously when we won the All Ireland. So um, that's not a bad a bad uh, start to have uh, uh, as a youngster coming into the panel with Owen Kelly as your captain. And um, yeah, like through the years, then um, there's been 
um, different captains like as I suppose lads around my age um, that I've grown up with um, who've been captains of, the, of different teams and the Tipsy and Hurling team with Brendan Maher and Shane McKellen and I suppose and Parik Maher the three of them have captain Tip and there are three lads that I would have looked up to all my career I suppose not alone just when they were, were captains but um, yeah they were they were great lads to look up to and um, great people to um, I suppose to learn from and to, to follow and do you think you'll take a little bit from all of them will you just try and do what it is that comes naturally to you yourself is it something you'll work on separately to your own game no look I think um, it's it's something that you it's you just go with um you don't really change much, to be honest. Or, um, I've been captain of my club a few times um, over the last number of years, and you just you just go and do go about your business, and you you train the way you always train. You work hard, um, and you put in the the same effort that that you do, no matter what um, title I suppose you have behind your name. So yeah, you just go with what's natural to yourself. Um, it's it's a it's a great honour, but um, at the same time, um, you have to go and perform on the training field and on match day when it comes as well. So, yeah, look, I'll I'll be I'll be looking to, I suppose, not to change too much of how I prepare and how I play um, over the over the next number of months, and um, I'm looking forward to, I suppose, helping any of the younger lads um, if they need anything or anyone at all on the panel. I suppose if they have any questions or anything that they need and. I'll be there to support them and support um, uh, anyone that, that that looks for any help. Does it slightly amend, Noel, the, the, the way in which you have to behave in the in the dressing room? Like, Do you have to be, as a result of that armband, more vocal? Do you have to kind of sit players down and deal with other things off the pitch as well? Or or how does it affect y- you in that regard? No, look, I think, to be honest, um, you, as I said, you, you just go about your business the same way that you do. If there are little bits and pieces that need to be done as as captain, um, I'll just take them on board and go with them. But um, I suppose the management team look after everything there, and um, they they deal with any any um, issues I suppose that players have or any queries and questions that players have. And if anyone comes to me and anyone needs a steer in any direction or help in any direction or a bit of advice in any direction, um, I'm definitely there to help as well. But um, no, I think, look, at the end of the day, you, you lead by how you train and how you apply yourself. And um, that's something that I'll be doing, um, I suppose, that I, I have done, I suppose, over the years. And it's something that I pride myself on is how I prepare myself and get myself ready to train and to play. And um, that won't change. And that'll be something that I'll be I'll be open to do and going forward in 2023. Liam Cahill named a, a forty-strong winter panel there last week for the for the uh, upcoming month or two. Uh, you have the two younger brothers as well, John and Brian, named on the panel. Like, do, 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 I mean, they're probably used to you being the boss at home. Does it affect <laughs> them the fact that you're the captain of the team now? No, Dustin. No, look, I suppose um, it's it's great to have to have um, the two boys there. But look, when when we go training with either Lockmore, Castellani, or Tipperary, we're just three lads going in there to do your best the same as everybody else and um it'll be no different next year and um look I suppose there's there's a forty man panel there and plenty of new faces which is uh, great for Tipperary and lads that are going to be putting their hand up and looking to get their place on teams and on panels and um that's the way it has to be and um it's it's great to see that freshness and for me, I suppose, someone who's been around for a few years, like to see all that coming in gives you a bit of energy and it kind of re-energizes me and makes me have to 
make sure that I'm on my game every night I go in train and that I'm prepared every night that I go train and that's that's how sport works and I suppose that's that's the way top level sport and competitive sport needs to be that you have new players coming all the time and players with hunger and desire and looking to, to wear the tip jersey and um I'm I'm really looking forward to the challenge in twenty twenty three. I suppose twenty twenty two was a disappointing season for, for everybody involved in Tip Hurling and um so look, I suppose we're we're looking to get ourselves um, back on track again in, in over the coming months and um see where that takes us in twenty twenty three. It's going to be mad this next year. It's the first year in the post-Cody era. Davies and Waterford, you, you mentioned Owen Kelly, a, a tip legend in the backroom team there. We had Clare burst out last year and fully show us exactly what they were capable of doing. And we have Limerick on the verge of becoming the greatest team of all time. Um, so a nice handy championship for you to uh, cut your teeth as captain next year. Yeah, look, it's 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 dog-eat-dog out there. Um, I think... I suppose hurling the nineties, I suppose, and the the middle nineties. I suppose a lot of teams came, and there was different teams winning all Ireland's. And even in the last number of years, there's um, I suppose before Limerick got their period of dominance, um, there was um, a few different teams that won all Ireland's. Um, so look, it's 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 great time to be involved in intercounty hurling. Um, it's exciting. Some of the games over the last few years, I suppose, COVID. Um, with no crowds, I suppose, took away bits from it. But since the round robin has been introduced, I think some of the games and the matches that have been played in that and in them championships have been unbelievable. That excitement and, as you mentioned, teams, new teams coming that maybe hadn't been there a year or two beforehand and competing at serious levels. And just, I suppose, it, it, it brings the excitement of, of what hurling is back um, to people and it, it gives people hope I suppose that that if you do put in the work and if you I suppose get get a run together and, and, and get things um right that every team has a chance on, on any given day and that's what that's all you can ask for I suppose is that you prepare well and then if you bring it out on match day um well you don't know what's going to happen then so um yeah look 2023 is going to be massively interesting and um one that I'm really really looking forward to being involved in uh, you obviously were part of a team that stopped Kilkenny doing their five in a row. So within Tipperary, within the institution of Tipperary Hurling, there is this knowledge of what it takes to stop the greatest teams. Um, is there similar conversations happening about this Limerick team at the moment? Because the rest of the country is obviously fascinated with how far they can go and what their absolute peak is. But at the same time, like the Munster final two years ago the first half of that performance was one of the best 35 minutes of hurling we've seen from anybody against Limerick the second half of that was best 35 minutes we've seen from Limerick potentially maybe apart from the Ireland final uh, against Cork and they were perfect in the first half um, so you've seen both sides of Limerick you've seen how to go toe-toe with them you've seen them at their absolute pomp what are your thoughts on where they are at the moment? Yeah look they're 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 the standout team at the moment um, they're They've, they've, I suppose, taken the game to a new level in, in, in how they play and how they prepare. And I suppose the rest of us are, are looking at it and, and trying to get there. And for us in tip, I suppose, um, given the year that's gone, like, we, we're, I suppose, a, good, a bit away from that at the moment. Like, um, I suppose we, we didn't win a game in Munster. Um, and we need to, I suppose, to get ourselves back to a level where we're competing first. And then we can think about taking on the likes of Limerick and Kenny's and, Parks and Watfords and Clare, um, 
But at the moment, I suppose, we just need to get our house in order and get ourselves back to a level where we can compete at that highest level. Like the standard of some of the games in the championship last year were unbelievable. I was at the Munster final in Turles and it was it was unreal, like the pace and the power and the skill and the excitement. Like So that's, I suppose, what gets the excitement levels going and that's, I suppose, what keeps me going and what keeps players going is is games like that that you want to be involved in and look as as a as a hurler and as a temporary hurler I no doubt that that's where we want to go and that's where we want to get to but I understand too that we we have a lot a, a lot of work to do and um to get ourselves right first when we get back training in the new year and into February and March during the league and then you you can see where you're going after that but we are I suppose after the year gone we need to just get ourselves back to that competitive level again. And that's a challenge that I'm looking forward to as a player and all the other players and the management are really looking forward to it as well. And um, look, as a player, you always dream. And like the dream obviously is to win Munster Finals, to win All-Ireland Finals and to be there and thereabouts and competing every year. And that's that won't change for me. And that's where we want to get to. There's no doubt about that. But at the moment, I suppose we just have to take stock of where we are, get our house in order um over the next few weeks, like next few months. And look, you, you'd see where you are then come February or March and hopefully we'll be in a good place and able to compete uh, with the with the teams at the top. When you talk about keeping players going, Noel, I guess uh, there's always the rumour mill when, when there's veterans on a team as to whether they'll continue. And, and uh, Shamie Callanan, 34, Bonner Maher, 33, they've both opted to keep going and continue next year. Bit of a boost when you see players like that with the experience. And look, both played on, on those uh, three All Ireland winning teams over the last twelve years with yourself. So good to have that experience still involved. Yeah, it is. Like they're you know, two top class players and that can bring massive experience and massive knowledge and loads of skill and work and um just good attitudes around around the group and there'll be lads that'll tie in with the rest of the group and there'll be players that'll look up to them and, and look for guidance from them as well and they'll be pushing um to to try and compete and play as well. So um, yeah, look, it's, in any team, you need different demographics and different ages and different characters. And um, the more, I suppose, that you have, the the better chance. And then when you pull all that together, um, you create a team and you create a panel and a group that are, are, are open to, to do something and to go somewhere. And like I think a lot can be made of age, but lads look after themselves so well nowadays that um, if you're able to play and you have the hunger and... Um, you're you're willing to put in that work well I don't think it matters if you're 19 or 20 or if you're 33 or 34 I suppose take TJ Reid for example he was one of the best players in the championship last year and and still one of the best players in the whole country so um, I don't think age really comes into it if if someone has the desire and the willingness to to compete and play for the team and and put in that work and um, it's great to have to have them two boys uh, back in tow for 2023. You're going to have to start answering those questions in a couple of years' time yourself. Um, I do wonder if, if the split season might help players who are in their 30s to continue for an extra couple of years in that the release valve of being with your club, I know obviously you take it incredibly seriously and it's very important to you and you look after yourself the same way you would do in season, but it's a different type of pressure and maybe the condensed nature of the the senior intercounty season might allow players in their 30s to extend their careers. I'm interested in your thoughts on that. Yeah, I suppose it, it, there's a, a good chance that it will. I suppose the intercounty season is shorter. You're not waiting for four, five, six weeks maybe between matches. And 
that definitely keeps players' appetite high and keeps your motivation high. Um, I remember back around 2017 or 18, I think we lost the first round of Munster Championship and we had no match for six weeks after that. And it's 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 hard. Like you, you train for a good number of months at the start of the year and all you want to do is play matches. So I think the new system definitely keeps players' motivation high and their desire to to train and it, it definitely helps and the split season to me as a player has been a massive success like it just takes away any I suppose pulling and dragging between club and county and you're able to devote your time to your county first and you're able to give your, your full time to your club then as well and you're not being pulled and dragged and getting into the club there the week of a match and then you're gone again for another four or five weeks with something I use hate um, whereas now like once the club championship starts, you're there every night you train, you're there for every match, you're there uh, the same as everybody else. And that really, really appeals to me. And it just it just means that you're able to give your full attention to, to both inter-county and to your club. And um, it's something that I've really, really enjoyed over the last couple of years. And obviously the, with COVID, it, it, it did change it up a small bit, but I think it's come out the good side of it now with, um, with the split season. And it's something that... I will be a huge advocate of as a player. Well, listen, we wish the very best of luck as the captain next year. Thanks a million for joining us. Cheers, Noel. Thanks very much, guys. It's uh, Noel McGrath, our tip captain, talking to us. Um, it's time for us to start thinking about the inter-county season. The Munster Hurling Championship next year, one of the great global sporting phenomena. Yeah, 100%. I think I think you can get excited. If we're allowed to get excited about the Rugby World Cup and the, the Women's Football World Cup next year at this stage, I think we can get excited about... January, February, the league. I've got the mechanic up to look forward to. Meeting. You do, you do. So uh, it'll keep us going for the next month or two. OTBAM is brought to you live with Gillette in association with Movember. Effort to shave. Magnificent Mo. You can sign up or donate now at Movember.com. That's it for today's show. If you missed anything, you can get it all back on podcast, which is where you'll find all of our best stuff from off the ball. Episode three of the Mike Quirk podcast is available now across the OTB podcast network with special guest Frank Dick, OBE, and ex-British Olympic coach. The latest episode of A Slight Tangent is available in Off The Ball Daily. Episode 1 of the new season of the AIB Club Championship Show with Willa Callahan and Ashley O'Reilly is available in the OTB GAA feed and there will be plenty more World Cup coverage in our soccer feed as well. OTBA, I'm back tomorrow morning. Shane and Johnny Ward in studio. will uh, check in with Kev at the World Cup. Alan Quinlan will be in studio. Michael Burton will be here to discuss the November campaign after he completed 32 half Ironmans. What have you been doing for the last month? Uh, plenty more besides right now we're leaving you with Packy Bonner in conversation with Shane Hannon alright well the World Cup is uh, started in earnest and I'm delighted to be joined by Republic of Ireland international legend Packy Bonner Packy how are you I'm very good thank you uh, delighted and, and happy to be able to talk about football absolutely absolutely it's, it's, it's all kicked off before we talk World Cup we might talk uh, Republic of Ireland and yeah. the friendly window I guess is over and it's all building up now towards, towards next March it feels like a while away but the two keepers got their got their game each, Gavin Bazunu and and, and Kelleher. Kelleher. Yeah. Um, it's it's a good sign for Irish football that you have two keepers at the top of their game like that that are competing for the number one jersey. It's it's fierce competition. You've got Mark Travers as well. Of, of course. course. Listen, we're so blessed that we have the three of them. You know, there was a period probably when I was uh, a young man who's coming after me. Then Shea, Shea and Alan Kelly appeared. 
Uh, and then after Shea, we were wondering who's the next. And it's fantastic to see three young goalkeepers uh, almost vying for, for, for the one, number one spot. They're all playing uh, at a good level. Uh, Mark Travers is back in, 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 the, in the team. Uh, and uh, Gavin is, is a sensational young man to come through and play with the maturity that he does. Um, at, and at the level he does at this moment in time in his career so now we're very blessed in that position Do you feel like uh, the arguments were made for Cuevin Kelleher that you know he's, he's getting serious experience with Liverpool with, with Alisson and training and all the rest but that maybe a loan move and more games Yeah, I, I knew you were going to ask that question <laughs> and to be honest I, I agree uh, like any young man we're just talking about a young man from Cork uh, Harrington um, uh, earlier on uh, I think at round about that age 23 you've got to get game time you've got to get out listen he's going to be training with the best one of the best who's going to be in the World Cup Alisson um, at, a, at a big club at Liverpool but you cannot beat game time uh, and getting out uh, getting among uh players making decisions because it's all about decision making building up enough decision making within that brain that when it comes to comes to the big games and when you play that it becomes an almost an automatic response uh, and that can be done in training or it can be done at game time unfortunately for Kevin he's not getting probably enough games while Gavin has probably built that up through his game time which is interesting you know when you look at it that way 100% um, it, I guess it's been an interesting number of months and even a year for, for Stephen Kenny and, and look he's we've had the two friendlies now and he's blooding young players as well but it's, it's difficult for him because I guess it's a results based business as well and look I know you're on the FAI board but when you're looking ahead and, and you're seeing the, the group that, that faces us in the Euros it, it's not the easiest Netherlands and, and, and France in the same group No and, and you're hoping maybe that, that France and Netherlands come off the World Cup with, a, with maybe demotivated or maybe that they they take the eye off the off the ball a little bit. Uh, Van Gaal will be gone I'm sure after this World Cup uh, Deschamps will probably be gone also so that might be a bit of a change. Uh, maybe the, maybe some players gone also. Uh, but listen they're quality two quality international teams they, they will probably maybe be even into the quarterfinals or semi-finals even maybe the final of, of this World Cup. So it's going to be no easy task but we have a young group. Um, Stephen is bl- trying to blend them, trying to come up with a formula that we can win games. Uh, we know that they can actually play good football uh, to a point, but uh, maybe short in a few areas still. Uh, but that's an ongoing process, trying to find one or two maybe they can complement and get the balance right within the team. Uh, but it's, it's, it's work in progress and it has to keep going. And hopefully we can get off to the right start in the next qualifier. Must be the most high-profile and, and stressful job in, in, in Ireland, maybe it's certainly in Irish sport, because it's funny, you see split between the fans, Kenny in and Kenny out, it seems every game or every window it's a referendum over, over his position, which must be difficult for a manager, you know, it's, it's a results-based business, as I said, so it's, it's stressful. Listen, every manager knows when they're in, in a position like that, there's stress, there's pressure, you've got to handle it, uh, sometimes, you, you know, for Stephen, he lives in the country, so he has it every day, walking up and down the street or wherever he goes. Uh, some managers don't live in the country and they get away from it um, but that's the nature of the beast um, but also I think every manager knows that yes you have to change the squad it takes a bit of time you've got to get players in but you've got to get results at the end of it all and time uh, over a period of time you want to try and qualify that's, that's your job and that's what you're doing but I think while any manager's in the position uh, you've got to try to give them 100% support and help um, and uh, I think the fans have done that very well. Look, we had 40, over 40,000 against Norway. It wasn't the best game in the world. We lacked a little bit of penetration. Stephen knows that. But the fans were there and they were giving them 100% support and giving a good group of young players a 
every every help to to mature and get themselves into into finals. And I think that's where where these players will really mature if they can get create that sort of get over that hurdle of qualification. Uh, and then people will take notice. The big clubs will take notice of, of some of our young players that they actually can perform at that level. But you have to do it. You've got to go out and do it. Um, I know Stephen's planning to head over and you know, take in a few games, especially the games that involve an Ireland's future opponents. Um, what are you most looking forward to seeing in, in the World Cup on the pitch yourself? Like, in terms of teams, predictions for who, who might win it or dark horses, that sort of thing? It's an interesting tournament, isn't it? Because the timing of it. Like, so normally we have a big build-up. We have, we have time to make up our mind of it teams and see the results that sometimes that doesn't tell you the full tale but but you have a time and then you, you sort of the marketing and all of that sort of build up happens this time we're kind of almost straight into it we've just finished the league seasons and around around the world and then suddenly there's this break and within two weeks we start a world cup so so that's that's an interest the players may be fitter they may be sharper i do expect a high even though it's going to be very warm conditions I do expect some teams to go out and press high uh, and, and try to maintain the sort of Champions League type of form that some of the clubs have shown into international football because that's what they're used to it'll be interesting to see will the players get injured yeah. uh, because you know a lot of players now have gone from a club environment into an international environment without much time for adaption so that'll be interesting to see how some of the players get on from that perspective but I, I think uh, I'm looking for an exciting one uh, I think the young players especially you know the likes of Vinicius Junior Rodri and uh, Rodrigo and, and uh, those kind of Valverde with Uruguay those those young players who are emerging in Champions League to show now what they can do and then the older guys like Messi and these guys there's the swan song. Can they go out on a, on a real high? And there's this big challenge between Ronaldo and Messi to see who's going to light up this World Cup. Sounds like you're leaning towards the South American teams. Yeah, a, a little bit, I think. I think I watched Argentina against uh, England, or sorry, against Italy down in Wembley. Uh, I was at the game and I thought Argentina was superb. Uh, I thought they were really strong. Um, you know, and, and a lot of them players, we see them in the Champions League, but, but they're not the stars, but they, when they blend themselves into a, a good, strong, um, I think, strong collective group with a few stars in among it, then they become really a really sensational team. It's, it's, a, it's a crazy World Cup from a number of vantage points, obviously. It's, it, it's unprecedented in terms of just Qatar and the selection process and how they got the, the, the gig in the first place, I guess. Um, and even today, just to all the one love armband you know England were going to wear it and now they're not going to wear it and a number of countries have come out and said the same essentially so what's your take on well, the think, other side of Qatar I suppose yeah well I think the FAI <coughs> and as a board member we've made it very clear that we support uh, immigrant workers and their their task um, and, and all all the other people uh, that has, has uh, been talked about um, uh, I think we, we're we're very clear in what we have to, what we said, and we we also have said that maybe this time we can use football to highlight some of these issues, uh, and hopefully things will be better for the community in Qatar after the World Cup and so on. Uh, and I think that's the message. I think we we have to we have to deliver here that football can be something to get those those uh, positive messages out to say that that uh, everybody's equal and everybody should be should be equal and on the field of play and the ones who come and support all sort of teams I suppose even I was chatting to Noel Mooney recently and he was kind of pointing out you know from the Football Association of Wales perspective I guess they were going to leave it up to to players themselves you know leaders leaders groups within the, the players if they wanted to to perform some actions during matches so be it it might it might be the wisest 
mood, yeah, I suppose. Yeah, I, 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 I think players will focus on the football. You know, they'll go out there. They'll, they'll yes, they can wear armbands. They can maybe have. The, but but in, in in terms of if, if you get caught up in other things, then you're not going to be focused on what your job is football. So I think they'll focus mainly on the football, and then maybe in interviews and so on afterwards they'll make their point. And listen, these are these are. Um, Entities on their own now, footballers, aren't they? <laughs> you know, you're, nobody can control them. Nobody can say what they should say, and they're, they, they are leaders, uh, and they're leaders for for a sport that's international. So, so they will come out and say their bit. It, one of the things I was chatting to Noel Mooney about was the the Euro twenty twenty eight bid, this prospective bid between ourselves and England and Wales and Scotland, um, and Northern Ireland, of course. But what's your take on that? Like, it, it could be something that you know, on the one hand, costs a lot of money, but the other hand, it will inspire a lot of young. Players, in, in yeah, well. I, 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 I can't, uh, I can't uh, see why people would object to having a, having a, a Euros here in Ireland and Scotland and England and Wales and Northern Ireland. I, I just can't see it because I, I think if I was a young man, um, when I look back to my own day, we used to look to further afield for for inspiration from football to have it in our own country would be incredible for our young generation uh, so I, I'm, a, I'm all for it to be perfectly honest and I know there is cost to it but maybe the, the, the results and whatever happens thereafter might outweigh the, the financial cost um, I suppose every time the World Cup rolls around, Paddy, every every four years, you're reminded of the name Daniel Timoff Day, and it just <laughs> comes up naturally. Like, is it the case? I remember watching an interview years ago with um, with Neil Armstrong. And he was yeah. Almost getting sick of being asked to be walking on the moon. Do you know, like, is it the case with yourself that so many years later, it's especially every four years, it seems to crop up in these memories. You're asked about the same split second moment. It's amazing, you know, if, if you went around Europe or the world and you asked uh, about Daniel Tomofte, nobody probably remembers him, but here in Ireland everybody remembers Daniel Tomofte, uh, which is quite incredible. Um, I spoke to him, you know, uh, in an interview many years ago and, and it was really nice to be able to, to speak to him about how his life went and so on and so forth and how, it, how both of us coming together, him missing it, me saving and how it affected both our lives uh, and that. but it's, listen, it's in my DNA, it's in his DNA uh, and uh, we can't get rid of it to be honest, you know, and I don't mind people talking about it to be honest, uh, uh, to be honest it's, it's, a, good it's a good memory, it's a good memory there's emotion around it also so you kept in touch for a small bit after the World Cup then? Yeah, I was, I was asked to, to talk to him just just uh, somebody was doing an interview with him and we were we were speaking on a, on a podcast or whatever and uh, yeah, he had spoken about, I, I wanted to know really from him was um, you know what was going through his mind? I know what was going through my mind leading it up, but I want to know. And he had he had mentioned that one of the, his players had said to him that I was slow going down on my right hand side, uh, and uh, to, to put it that said, and he normally hits the penalty down the middle. That that was that's what he said to me, absolutely. And, and uh, he says he changed his mind. And you can imagine if he didn't change his mind, where would he be today? Sliding doors moment. <laughs> Jesus, yeah. Well, you weren't too slow getting down your right-hand side that Yeah, day. well, that day, that day. But that's, that's what, that's what uh, analysis can be wrong also. Yeah, of course, of course. Funny, we had, we had John Aldridge on a, on a roadshow there in the last week or two, and um, he got very emotional talking about Jack Charlton and, yeah. and what he meant to, to Irish football. And he, like, he made the very valid point, you know, in terms of a statue of, of Jack, there's none. And, and, and even, you know, whether it's around the Aviva Stadium, someone joked that it could be in the middle of the Walkenstein roundabout after all the uh, yeah, celebrations yeah, yeah. in Halley 90. But, I mean, do you think there should be some sort of commemoration to Jack at the Aviva Stadium? Yeah, I think place? commemorations of, of individuals is a good thing. I, I, you know, I'm very attached to Sally Football Club because I played there for 17 years and they've got their uh, statues outside of the Jocks Dean, of... of uh, <coughs> 
uh, you know, Jimmy Johnson of those kind of people, uh, Billy McNeil and that. And, and it's always nice because fans go up and, and, and get their pictures taken and they're there for for forevermore. Um, and it would be nice, not just Jack, but maybe other people uh, that has gone in the past mm-hmm. also, maybe people in the future. But it would be nice to have that around. And I know it was shared with rugby and there's not maybe uh, that, that same kind of almost reason maybe there's a few rugby people too of course, course that would be up there so but it's nice to have those those places to go to and keep the memory alive that's for sure because jack was special to all of us all mm-hmm. of us guys uh, i know he would have his, have his critics also like everybody in football uh, even when he was so so successful over here there was people criticizing him for the way he played the game and so on and so forth and we could have done better but that's the, the nature of of football we all have an opinion we all love it and that's why why we talk about it and that's why we're talking about it today again also uh, but in the, in, the, in the memory of Jack of, of what he achieved and what he brought to the country and what he what he did for us us group of players to uh, to ignite the country a little bit and, uh, and, and and really start something that was very very special for, for all of us and especially you guys at the age you were I don't know what age you were you were probably only a gasser only a babber yeah 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 and yeah. <laughs> um, you mentioned Celtic there, Paki, and I know that like the, the disappointing Champions League campaign. But what, what are your thoughts on what Ange Postecoglou has been doing at, at Celtic Park? Because there's been positive stuff, and we're seeing the news today that Giovanni Verbrancourt has been sacked oh, from he, Rangers. Oh, so he's gone from the Rangers. So gone, I didn't get that news. Sorry, so, wow. uh, it's only in the last hour or two. Wow, so um, wow. it's it's an interesting time at Celtic. You're, you're seeing you know Rangers struggling. And he's certainly playing a nice brand of football under Ange Postecoglou. I've I've done most of the games all season uh, because I work for BBC over by, and uh, it's been a pleasure actually. <laughs> but it's a pleasure when when you're working and you're not not having to do a critique all the yes. time on on what they're doing wrong. Uh, the critique is on everything positive. What he's been able to do in a, in a year and a half, really, to come in. Uh, changed the whole squad around mm. was incredible last one though in January when they brought in the Japanese just gave them the edge and everybody else yeah. um, um, and he'd probably do it again he'd probably bring in one or two more uh, the way that he plays the intensity he plays what um, he's got players who are very very technical there's some of them going to the World Cup mm. Baron Moy's going uh, Carter Vickers is going which is fantastic Maeda is going with Japan so it's going to be nice to see how they get on in their countries but over in Scotland they're, they're back to ruling the roost over there uh, and I think I think it's all down to the manager I think the way and he's calm he doesn't get carried away too much he mm. doesn't go over the top and he doesn't go too low when things aren't going so well even within the Champions League it was really interesting narrative if you look at it Giovanni Van Bronckhorst has been sacked Maybe he was too negative when he came out, and the fans didn't like it. Even though the you know they, they lost badly, but so did Celtic. Celtic lost a lot of games also. But the narrative that Ange Postecoglou was supposed to bring out was much more positive, mm. much more about we keep playing our, our game, keep doing the right thing, and it'll come right. Uh, and that then sort of kind of almost the fans were happy with that, and he did see them create a lot, a lot of chances within the games and I think then he was able to back that up by, by maybe using the stats around that uh, to, to back up his narrative and uh, they love him yeah big time uh, can, I, can I just ask you finally Packy and it was something that uh, it was a lovely moment before the before the uh, the Norway friendly I think it was where the little kids from Chrysler in oh, Donegal I, came out yeah. and, and look that's that's look it's tough for everyone in Donegal and, yeah. and for some reason Donegal seems to be a county that's constantly hit by, by tragedy in, in many different um, aspects, but that that must have been quite an emotional 
moment for yourself and everyone in Donegal, yeah. but also to see the likes of Seamus Coleman, a role model, even you know meeting these kids from from Greece, that was was a special moment before. Yeah, the listen, it was, it was a shock what happened. You know, I was there in the summer, I passed through uh, that part. I was <coughs> down playing golf, and you know, and, and a lot of people I spoke to, you know, used that that place and that garage and, and uh, dropped in there on lots and lots of occasions and, and uh, for it to happen um, out of nothing was a quite an incredible shock for everybody concerned and, and the families and, and the people that was lost and the families that are affected uh, and that'll go, that hurt will go on for a long, long time. Um, when you're abroad, um, we always become very Irish and very Donegalish <laughs> uh, and, and we can almost have a have a have a. I don't know if we need reasons to be to to bring that Donegalness out in us, but this was certainly one. Uh, we felt for everybody. We prayed with them. Uh, we, we 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 I suppose uh, cried with them to a point, uh, and we felt their 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 real heart and their real sadness um, and around the world. And I've spoken to so many people. I went to New York uh, a couple of weeks ago for an Irish uh, Donegal. Um, Donegal um, dance and uh, it was the talk, that's, that's all that they were talking about, you know um, and uh, and hopefully, you know, stuff that maybe has gone on since will help these people and help the families to maybe come to terms with it, It'll take them a long, long time uh, so a, t- a tough, tough time but listen, us Donegal people were, were, were strong, were resilient, we have had a lot of um, disasters in around my area too, in the sea and so on and so forth um, but we stick together uh, and we always do we talk about each other in Donegal by the way mm. but we stick together when we're away from it uh, and that. And this is the occasion that we all come come together warm words lovely words Packy thanks a million as always OTB AM with Gillette in association with Movember Effortless Shave Magnificent Mo.